0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt
2: Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. Yes, Dr. Matt is back. Back from a long... Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Back from a long um, vacation at Spa Hospital. Thank you. Thank you. We're wow. here all day. Wow, this is like this, this is, is like
3: Trump's uh, reception. It's, it's more fi- like
2: Obama, I think. 15-minute standing ovation. Wow. This is amazing. Thank you. Good to be back. Good to be back. I uh, had a little uh, swollen pancreas, apparently, mm. which, you know, normally caused by IV drug use or alcoholism, neither of which I have. <laughs> So you think they'd go to the next option. Uh, Maybe it's something you're eating. Hmm. They didn't go there. They just kept going back. So are you sure you haven't used IV (laughs) drugs? Are you sure you you haven't been doing stuff you shouldn't be? No, I'm pretty sure I haven't done that. So then you think they'd go right to then my diet, Hmm. which is like an obvious violation. And then they'd go right back to my history of alcoholism. Wrong. So, so, are you sneaking a little bit of alcohol? No, no, not at all. Nope. Mm. How many partners have you had? One. Hmm. <sighs> right. <laughs> anyway, it was a really long. But I had, if you, you guys, I, I'm telling you, as a man that has passed kidney stones, there's nothing worse than a pancreas that just wants to jump out of your body. It's exactly. This is audio. Of when I went to the emergency oh. room. But we, today couldn't be a perfect, a better day because, a I I got here. And the other weird thing is I'm on a liquid diet, so I don't – I really don't have a lot of energy. And I'm seeing just the fat on my body just gets sucked into my system. Mm. It's really kind of nice. Yeah. It is. It's wicking away. Yeah, it's kind of nice.
3: So wait, tell us what you had to turn down again for dinner last night.
2: So I'm sitting there. I've been on a liquid diet for about five <laughs> – since last Saturday – and my wife brought home, of all things, Kentucky Fried Chicken.
4: <laughs>
2: I know. And I sat there. But honestly, I'm to a point now that I don't have any energy to care. And my body is thinking, that's gross. That will make you sick. My body now knows that if I ate that, in fact, I, looked, I kept looking at the skin of like a chicken breast just thinking, Man. I, if I wanted to kill myself right now, all I got to do is take a bite of that because it would it would light me right up. But and, what a way to go. But what a way to go. Right. And who would have known that never having had any alcohol in my life that that I'd have a disease that was from alcoholism, I guess? You wouldn't have died unless it was maybe extra crispy. Oh, no, that would have killed me. Yeah. But it's, it's a weird fix. And today we're going to be talking about how the sick part of our – world may not be the sick people in our healthcare system it may be the system the and i will i will this is It couldn't be better timing cuz after being in the hospital for 2 days and really as far as a resort experience fantastic hmm. like seriously good resort experience honestly i got great sleep uh they kept just shooting me up with morphine and that's really what I'm figuring out that the hospitals are really good for. They're not really good at fixing anything. They're really good at just stopping pain. And if they can stop your pain, you'll go there every day. In fact, I think I saw a lot of people lining up in the emergency room to get pain meds. Hmm. But they stopped my pain and I my pain was on a scale on a 10. And they stopped it. So then they're like your best friend. And then when they say, we're going to keep you – we're going to admit you for a few days to figure out what's going on with this pancreas thing. OK. But by the way, by the time I left, they hadn't figured it out. They hadn't tested – they hadn't done the test that their facility would later have to do on me as an outpatient. They hadn't – and to this day, six days later, they still don't know. Hmm. exactly what causes it. They'll, but they'll my, it but my other doctors that like my my general practitioner they know a lot of people know but the hospital doesn't know what's wrong with me so on the way
3: out i assume they just said oh be insurance be sure and stop by the pharmacist you'll pick up your drugs and yeah. then also uh we'll have you make an appointment at the psych ward too
2: oh no, yeah yeah i did keep getting psych ward people coming by Dropping, hey, when are you coming to visit? No, the I had a really cool experience. Uh, so on my way out, I needed to get a prescription filled for painkillers, which, by the way, my last day in the hospital, I was using no painkillers. So it seems weird to me. I wasn't using any. Like ibuprofen is all I needed. And yet on the way out, they're like, hey, but take a handful of these. You're going to need them. And they're only five bucks, but they happen to be the drug on the market that is all the – talk. It's all the rage. And they're at all the rages. Um, Is that why you're holding two $100 bills in your hand right now? (laughs) Yeah. No, but here's what's weird. So I went to get those drugs thinking, I guess I'm going to need these. And uh, the person at the kiosk, which is a computerized center that you talk to the pharmacist at the other end of the hospital, he recognized me. He knew who I was and he bought my drugs for me. Oh, uh-huh. it was really nice. It was the nicest gesture ever. He's like, I've been to your, it's like I've been to your date nights. Just like these drugs will take away the pain in your belly, and you've taken away the pain in our marriage. Let me pick those up for you. And I'm like, what? I can't hear you through this microphone. <laughs> it's like it was, a drive-up window. It, it is. Do you want fries with that, sir? It was a really beautiful experience, and he he just he paid the four dollars and twenty cents. That's great. It was a great story, honestly. Then I went and got my first. Um, what do they call Jamba Juice? Is that, that is
3: exactly what they call it. My first yeah. of many,
2: as I'm now on liquid a liquid diet. Liquid diet. Did you get the grass shot? No, I I Cargo tried my boost ever since I found out that I'm an <laughs> alcoholic, even though I've never had a taste of alcohol. But I have a, the pancreas of an alcoholic. Well, Matt, the
3: first step toward healing is admitting you have a problem. So
2: yeah, or that I well done have a problem I didn't have. Yeah. So since then, I won't take any shots of anything, hmm. except of course Jamba Juice. Right. Getting really good at smoothies. Really good at smoothies and broth. Hmm. Like the vintage broth. Somebody That's asked me, "Dad, is this like a urine sample?" <laughs> No, son, it's dad's broth. This is dinner. Go back and eat your chicken. (laughs) Jerk. Anyway, all that ahead, uh, we'll be talking about the American sickness, how health care became a big business, and how you can take it back. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on?
5: Immigration and Customs Enforcement announced on Thursday that it arrested 1,300 people, mostly U.S. citizens across the country, in the largest ever anti-gang operation. Of those arrested, 933 were Americans, 445 were not. Uh, three had protected status as part of the Obama administration Defend Action for Childhood Arrivals, the DACA program as it's called. The vast majority of those arrested, 1,095, were confirmed to be part of a gang including the Bloods, Serranos, MS-13, and the Crips. So wow. So it's a gang sweep. Hold all these guys in. A Russian jet fighter came within 20 feet of a U.S. Navy aircraft this week when they were both over the Black Sea. An American official reported Captain uh, Pamela Koos, a a spokeswoman for the U.S. Naval Forces in Europe, said a Russian uh, Su-27 came extremely close. To uh, the uh, Poseidon on Tuesday, while it was conducting routine operations in international airspace, the PA-8 and the in, uh, interaction was safe and professional. Russian Ministry of Defense of the jet ex- executed a greeting maneuver Ooh. towards the Americans. Let's try to fly within 20 feet of another airplane. Boy, oh boy, greetings! A group of major candy corp- uh, companies announced Thursday that it will be working together over the next five years to slash the amount of sugar and calories in packaged sweets. Marsh Chocolates, Nestle USA, Lint, Ghirardelli, and-, mm. and Wrigley's, the companies behind everything from M&M's, Skittles, Butterfingers, and Snickers, all things Matt cannot eat now, Sheesh. are reportedly among the candy makers so on board. The goal is to ensure that half of their individually wrapped products sold in the U.S. contain no more than 200 calories within the next five years. So your candy isn't going to be as good, <sighs> is what I got from that. Less sugar, not as
3: good. They're probably going to have to make them smaller, too. I'm guessing. I'm,
5: uh, that's usually how they cut
2: the yeah, calories. Yeah. Is they just <laughs> but I, and again, the price will stay, what, go up 20%?
5: Of course. They may raise the price. Just makes sense. It. The group also plans to clearly label candies with calorie counts and help educate the public <laughs> on how to how to fit treats into a healthy lifestyle. If uh,
2: The reality is, is the person that's not healthy reading these labels anyway? No, they're just eating the candy. Now all you're doing is you're just going to make more trash.
5: The FDA has some new policies coming out, so they're trying to get into compliance is what this is all are about. There,
3: are there people that don't know that candy bars aren't good for you? Like is somebody picking up a candy bar and saying,
5: oh, what's this? Fitness bar. Wow. <laughs> um, and finally, avocados widely praised for their taste, versatility, and health benefits. So, of course, it was only a matter of time before the medical world found a reason to scare consumers away. The reason is avocado hand. According to the Times of London, doctors and surgeons in the UK are becoming alarmed at the increasing rate of patients who accidentally lacerate their own hands while attempting to slice through the avocado. In fact, avocado hand has become so common that doctors at the uh, St. Thomas Hospital in London reportedly ready themselves for a post-brunch surge of avocado-related injuries on Saturday afternoons. Really? (laughs) One particular surgeon in the city uh, says he stitches up an average of four avocado hands up per week. People don't anticipate how ripe the fruit is when they cut into the avocado, and so they put too much force behind it, and they slice their hand. Doctors aren't just dealing with minor cuts and scratches either. The Independent reports that amateur cooks have sliced their hands badly enough to require surgery, and other times avocado hand has led to serious nerve damage.
2: Holy cow.
5: slicing their hands.
2: Don't you remember when it used to be um, bagel hand? Yeah because it was a bagel that you'd cut your hand uh using but uh, are people like why don't you you just don't put you don't put the avocado on the table and cut it
5: apparently they're holding it in their hand well, like like it you, just
2: fits your hand perfectly I like guess,
5: and then you cut into your hand where yeah. whenever i was taught proper knife handling skills it's cut away from you
2: absolutely that's true plus we learned um also don't use um power drills power saws mm. power tools at all try not to point them at your body yeah. while you – kind of yeah
3: Maybe it's the part because to get the pit out, this is the way my wife taught me, you take the knife and you kind of slam yeah. it into the pit.
2: My wife likes to say, hi-yah, and then stick <laughs> it in there and then twist it out. Um,
5: Sharper knife, maybe?
2: See, but that's another thing. Like, we don't have a knife in our house that could cut through an avocado and my hand. Yeah. So, again, if you want to simplify your life, just wear your knife blades out and don't, yeah. don't worry about sharpening them again. I don't know, then maybe. you're good.
5: It just seems like operator error. Maybe you need to th- rethink how you're cutting your avocado.
2: Yeah. Oh, don't even say the word avocado. Mm. Certain things right now, I my I can't stomach thinking about KFC. Like can't KFC can't don't. Maybe. Oh,
3: yesterday we talked about the KFC double down. What's talked that? about the double decker taco.
2: Mm. Yeah. Now see, it's interesting on a liquid diet. If it's not if it's not fluid I don't want to go near it. Can you pretty
5: much liquefy anything?
2: Yeah, but what's funny is my body when I think of like liquefying a taco, yeah. I mean, conceptually it's a beautiful idea. Right, yeah. <laughs> but my head's like, yeah, no. Oh my. So, see. my body's getting trained to the to be repulsed by certain fats. I'm just wondering what it's going to take to overcome this. Yes. I think once the there's a pain serious goes intervention, away, yeah. I did have a really crazy. So I came home from the hospital by the way on my birthday. It was a beautiful birthday. Mm. We celebrated your birthday you? on the
3: show yeah. without you.
2: So I think I, I think it was Monday. I got Monday morning. No, Monday afternoon I got out of serving my time. And then somebody brought by by the way, my last meal, they said just now just try to eat this and anyway, it was lasagna. Mm. So I went from like this again tells me my – the hospital had no clue what I had. Right. I, they knew I had a swollen pancreas, but which was probably caused by a gallstone. But then they did a little test, the cheapest test they could do to figure out it wasn't a gallstone because they didn't see any stones on the cheap test. But they, by the way, had three more tests they could have done. Would have cost more, mm. but we would have then known what I had. Instead, they they ordered lasagna for me. I did not order it. They ordered me lasagna with some broccoli on the side, which broccoli makes you quite gassy. <laughs> and um, I did not know that. My nurse taught me that. So she's like, I can't believe they're giving you this. Like, you should be on a bland diet. you went been on a bland diet. So I went home. I didn't eat the lasagna. That's crazy. But then somebody brought us our family a meal, which was um, enchiladas mm. and watermelon. So I ate a ton of watermelon. It was awesome. Then... Just going to try a little bit of the enchilada
6: eh,
2: eh, eh, eh. did try it and then rushed back to the hospital that night to go readmit myself and I need that funny guy to stick me again and bruise my arms up. Um, But on the way in, as we're pulling into the hospital, so I'm having this exact same attack I've had before, by the way, caused by something that was different in the last few hours, which I'm going to bet was an enchilada, not my alcoholic problem that I've never had a taste of alcohol. And right then I had a this – no one understands it. I said a flutter, a flutter in like my pancreas area and I felt better. So then I go to a, a professional nurse practitioner who works with gastroenterology and said – she said, oh, yeah, that was probably the stone moving. Everyone else looked at me like flutter. What are you, fairy princess? <laughs> no, I just felt a flutter. Did, what, did, a fl- did a fairy fly into your innards and mm. – no. Then I knew when I met this nurse practitioner and I love her to death, Emily – I knew I'd found my soulmate because she understood what the fluttering of a heart or a pancreas or just your gallbladder
5: she's like a gallstone whisperer she totally is
2: and she knew me she knew me with hardly knowing me she knew me and you know what she looked me right in the eye it was the most amazing moment she said you know what you need and I'm like a hug she said no you need a CT scan And we're going to go see if you got gallstones. So I'm going to order that. She ordered it. Wow.
5: So many moments. Emily
2: Emily even called me later. Gave me some other news of some other reports, finding out that I didn't have all these other diseases they said I had. Anyway, I miss her. Yeah, I'm here for you. Emily, thank you for being the <laughs> nurse practitioner that no other doctor in the hospital of, in Salt Lake City, the biggest hospital in Salt Lake City, could provide. <sighs> Good to be back, folks. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're talking about an American sickness, how healthcare became big businesses, and how you can take it back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know it. Uh, what a great day! First of all, to be back to the show after a little medical issue, but it's um, and having to go to a hospital and spend a couple days there, it really has taught me a lot. It's taught me an awful lot about the healthcare world. We talk about, you know, the Congress is now revamping the healthcare program. Um, Obamacare took such a beating. We hear of Aetna and all of these other companies pulling out of the healthcare world and no longer wanting to provide, uh, uh, you know, services in in certain conditions. And and I sit there and I thought after sitting in a hospital for two days, again, not even a really a very basic issue that um, and yet how the how the how I was treated, how I how I was handled. It was a really interesting world. And. Uh, then to to couple it with our next guest, um, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal joins us. And, uh, you know, America is spending an average of about $10,000 per person a year on health care. But are we actually getting our money's worth? And uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal is a former physician, now editor of Chief, uh, editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News. She's here to discuss her book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business, and How You Can Take It Back. Uh, Dr. Rosenthal, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. This, honestly, from me being in the hospital just a few days ago to uh, and then reading everything I read about in preparation for this uh, interview, we, I think we're in trouble. Um, Yeah. and, (laughs) And your book was so perfectly, I mean, it's just so full of information about how the healthcare industry is really... It's about business now and it's um and, and its goals don't necessarily line up with the average person using the healthcare system, is that
7: right? Oh absolutely. I think what's happened over the last uh twenty, thirty years is that the values of business have so infused our healthcare system that uh the values of healthcare care have kind of are on the back burner and so you know, I, I think it's fine if, if business is involved in healthcare. You know it's a national decision if we want these healthcare companies to be for profit, but I think the bigger issue is the values of business are what are they their efficiency, their um profit maximization, their revenue generation as you know if you're a for profit business, that's what you go for. Mm. but what are the values of healthcare care? They're like caring for people, healing illness, you know healing the sick. Um, And and those are two really, really different value systems. And sometimes they align and sometimes they don't. So I think, you know, we see when we're in a hospital, how, you know, efficiently, or we're in a doctor's office, you know, five minutes per per visit because that's efficient or order a whole bunch of tests and no face time with the doctor, that's efficient. But that's not the kind of healthcare that we say we want. And also that's not the kind of healthcare that's actually good for your health.
2: Right. No, in fact, and I I sat in an emergency room for five hours and of the five hours, only 20 minutes, 25 minutes was I even in the presence of a doctor or a nurse in, right. in that time. And, and yet what else is funny is that my uh, – so I just had an, basically a, a pancreatitis which is caused probably by gallstones and my lifestyle would say yeah it's probably more my fatty life where i go oh, i eat high <laughs> yeah. you know fast food that but It seems like that solution was really basically going to be ruled out from everything I've learned after the fact by a by a blood test, really. And then um, so they knew that in a blood test that, let's say, took two hours to get back. But I still sat there for five hours. Then I was moved upstairs for two days. Um, But then you'd think what they'd want to do is figure out what's wrong with me exactly. And yet I left the thing uh, I left with two days of bills, and I already know what I'm going to be paid for. I mean, I already know, like, I'm going to be paying for the little containers of uh, uh, soap that I didn't use. That I mean, I feel like I went to – I really do. I feel like I went to a Marriott and had a really nice nurse that was nice and took care of me. And then every four hours, they'd pump, you know, morphine into me <laughs> to make sure I wasn't in pain. But I, when I left the hospital two days later, I didn't feel like I knew any more about right. anything than I knew that very first day after that very first blood test.
7: Right, and that's the problem. You know, also efficiency in health care is really different than efficiency in billing, right? If yeah. you stay for a few more days, since everything is charged in a hospital, if you have insurance or if you're uninsured, this is slightly different for Medicare patients, which yeah. is why I say this. Um, by the item, you know, item by item, 15 minutes in the recovery room, ka yep. you know, Tylenol for $17, um, two days at the best, you know, that's what's that, like 3000 bucks a day probably, or, you know. So, so true. you know, the incentive, there's no incentive, I not think that's why they're keeping you there, but there's no incentive if you're the business manager of the hospital, and Business people run hospitals to say, what are we doing for this guy? Mm. And instead, you know, what we see, which is kind of weird, is you leave without a diagnosis. But I bet, you know, most hospitals look like hotels. So, you know, yeah, maybe there's good the Internet. There's, you know, there's, there's the people are really nice. Um, you know, there's a concierge service. But you leave without a diagnosis. I mean, the efficient thing would be to get you a diagnosis right away so yeah. you didn't need to be in the hospital. Well, and I would so think,
2: I, that's what I would think that they'd want to do is, but then there's almost a disconnect between kind of the loving, caring, you know, service provider at one end, but the hospital at another end, because they they then referred me to go get outpatient scans
8: right. that
2: they could have just done in the hospital for the two days I was there. And... I guess it would have charged me more, but they did an outpay. I don't know. It was just the weirdest thing. But one of the points that I love in your book is really it's more about other than a cure. They're not looking for a cure. They're looking for a treatment because a treatment is what they make their money on.
7: Yeah. And I think, you know, um, it's tests and procedures and hospitalization are, are the revenue source. Um sitting down with a patient and saying, hmm, what's going on here? Let t- tell me about the history of your pain. Maybe we can figure it out that way. Um, I was just at the Mayo Clinic, and one cardiologist said to me, uh, you know how I figure out what's wrong with people? They arrive with 20 pages of different tests. It's by listening to them, and yeah. we undervalue that, right? We all undervalue yes. the, the, the waiting, watchful waiting, both as patients and physicians. Sometimes the answer is, let's just see if this gets better on its own. But that's not a revenue source. And patients and doctors, because we live in this, and we've taken for granted this medical system that always wants to do something, always wants to do something. And that's partly because of the revenue involved. Um, My mom, when she goes to the doctor, says, oh, I went to see Dr. Hart, and she didn't even order a test or an x-ray. You know, (laughs) we think we've been gypped. Yeah. And P.S. You know, since we're probably now paying maybe two, three hundred dollars for that visit, we don't want to hear come back in two weeks and pay right. another two, three hundred dollars. I mean the incentives are all messed up and they the incentives prime all of us to do exactly the wrong kind of medicine, which is what so bothers me. Um Having trained as a
2: physician, yeah, and in fact, uh, Libby, let's take a break. We we, we got to see if we can get a better uh, line, f- phone line, with you because you are coming in and out. But I oh, want you sorry. to I want you to get into the meat of your book, American Sickness. It really is. It's such a good resource for all of us that are because a lot of this is, you know, we're the consumer, and in the end, we've got to take back this healthcare system, uh, to whatever degree we can. When we come back, we'll talk about pricing and sticky pricing. Why is it that we pay so much more for an MRI, even though its technology is 20 years old, right? Should we still be paying more for technology that's 20 years old? Well, did you know in certain countries like Japan, they won't pay it? You bring me new technology, I'll pay higher prices for new technology. Old technology, I'm not going to pay high prices for that. Uh, you know, you don't pay incredibly high prices for an x-ray, do you? No, that's old technology. But MRIs, for sure. Only in America. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, uh, we're going to continue this discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal in her book, An American Sickness. Sick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. She is the editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News and um, also was a past former physician as well as uh, an, an author of the book An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Elizabeth, again, thank you for being with us.
7: Oh, thanks for having me here.
2: So talk about why the costs are are so high in the United States? I mean, what are the big drivers that keep pushing our health care costs up as opposed to other countries, especially when we're we're not deriving more benefit?
7: Right. I think that's the, the, the pretty shocking thing that we're paying three times as much, and yet when you look at s- scales of how well we're doing, our health results, they're pretty mediocre. They're in the 20th to 30th position. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the real answer is that there's no reason to charge less in this country. You know, what? one of the rules of the healthcare market is prices will rise to whatever the market will bear, and, and the market will bear almost an infinite amount because there's no person or institution pushing back. And, and what do I mean by that? Um, you know, so, and I'll give you a little bit of the history of this because then you see, and that's what yeah. the first part of the book is about, how we got here. You know, a long time ago, or not so long ago, 20 years ago, insurance, for those of us who were lucky enough to have it, you know, our employer paid the premiums, and we didn't really have out-of-pocket costs. And what does a business do if there's no one seems to be paying? Okay, something that you might have charged $20 for if someone had to write a check, you charge $200 for yeah, why not? And say, uh, okay. And then what happens around the turn of the century is actual business consultants come into our system. And they say, hey, you know, you could actually bill lots more for this, and you could probably get away with it. And that's when we see this crazy divide between what's billed and what's paid, where hospitals start trying to charge, you know, $17 for the Tylenol bill, and, you know, uh, minute-by-minute fees for your OR time, and $20,000 for the hip implant. Mm. You know, everything just spirals up and up and up, and, of course, you know, these are businesses, so... One sector looks at the other, you know, hospitals look at, uh, doctors look at hospitals and say, wow, look at the rates they're charging. And wow, look, there are now 20 administrators each earning a a, a million dollars a year. Why am I a schmuck, you know, for not, why am, I should get in on this too. And the more entrepreneurial doctors do. And then the pharma people, you know, pharmaceuticals used to be cheap. And suddenly that's spiraling out of control. And, and it's kind of this inflationary arms race. And the problem is, in our country, there's nothing to stop that. There's no way to push back on it. Other countries have decided, we're going to set ceilings for what you can charge. Um, we've never taken that attack. Medicare does, but does- elsewhere we don't. And also, and this is why the second part of the book comes in of how you can take it back, we as consumers... We're very limited, but we don't even apply the tools that we have to push back. So most of us look at these crazy bills, hope our insurer pays, and then think, phew, we dodged a bullet, yeah. we don't have to pay very much this time. And guess what? The next time it's going to be even worse, because these are for-profit companies, mostly in our health care. And, and, you know, you look at the price of EpiPens, or you look at the price, I'm hearing a lot about, it, of insulin now. There's no effective way to push back. And if you're a for-profit company and one price works, the, the strategy next year, as we see with insulin now, is, um, you know, the insulin makers raise the price 8% just last week, maybe once or twice a year. And why not? Their, their primary responsibility is to their shareholders, not right. to the people with type 1 diabetes. So, um, you know, we get exactly the kind of reaction one would anticipate in a free market with no effective way to push back forces because it's not really a free market those people with insulin dependent diabetes the type 1 diabetics, they didn't choose to have diabetes right they don't choose what treatment they're
2: on. uh yeah. yeah you know what and Eliza- Elizabeth, <laughs> oh we're losing you a little bit elizabeth maybe if you're uh j- just try to Hold still when you're on the phone. I, I don't know what's happening okay. with your line, but let I'm me. Let, no, no, it's, it's, I'm sure it's just, it's just the way it's going. Yeah. But here's the thing, um, because, and two, I, there is a responsibility for us. Like, I, when I find out, oh, I've got to go get a CAT scan, a CT scan for my, um, for my pancreas or whatever, then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, well, how much of that am I going to have to pay for? Oh, well, it's an $800 procedure and I only have to pay 20%. Oh, OK. So, well, that's pretty good. But the reality that you brought up, which was an awesome point, is, yeah, but you may be doing it on a scan that shouldn't cost $800. Maybe the scan should cost 100 Um right. Or there might be a better scan. And talk about, like, Japan and the MRI.
7: Sure, sure. I mean... You know, people with diabetes can't choose not to use influence. Right, does not work for emergency or necessary services. But much of what we do in healthcare is somewhat elective. You know, your doctor says you have to get a scan, and he or she may say, "Go to this center, go to the, come back to the hospital for your scan." But you know, this is where people's antennas should go up and say, "Wait, um, how much is it going to cost at that that facility?" Are there cheaper facilities around? Because what we see is, you know, for something like an MRI, costs can vary in this country from maybe $500 to $5,000. And, you know, so I want to ask my doctor to send me to the cheapest facility that does a good job. He or yeah. she knows that. And um, and my doctor, I asked my doctor for this, and, and he can do it. It's a little extra trouble because probably the doctor's computer is Trying to send it to the hospital, which may be the most expensive place in your area. So, and, and you know, we say, well, we're only paying 20%, but if you're paying 20% of the $5,000, um, we're talking serious cash now. And the thing is, if you look at what happens in countries that set the price of these tests for what they're actually worth, um, an MRI in Japan costs between 100 hundred and one hundred fifty and $150. Huh. Yeah, it costs a lot more. You know, the way the Japanese set prices is, there's a brand new, technology. wow, really valuable compared to what was there before.
2: Oh, we lost so, you a little a bit. Uh, Elizabeth, sorry, right. you keep coming in and I'm out. No, I'm sorry. No, I, I, so our, it's our line. Um but so, one of the things you, I think you were saying is Japan sets their prices based on if there 's a new product out, then they you can charge more for your new product while it 's kind of groundbreaking and it 's worth that. But over twenty or thirty years, the value of its of its technological advancement isn 't there anymore, so the price in Japan of an MRI comes down to one hundred and fifty dollars, where for us minimum it 's five hundred up to five thousand is so part of that I guess is the business side of this where they're going to make as much money as they can, but you're saying too, we don't have any agency, we don't have government pushing back and regulating it necessarily price wise is right. that is that where we need to begin is is it and it's us as a consumer turning this into a consumer market like you bring up a wonderful point in your uh one of your programs uh, or one of your uh area and one of your books or your articles about LASIK surgery and LASIK uh-huh. eye surgery because it's an elective surgery and it's highly competitive. So people are – the the cost of it is really low relative to other eye surgeries that may not be as, as essential. Um, right. is, is it my job as the consumer to make sure I'm finding the competitiveness or do I need to go fight my congresspeople to get a, a better marketplace?
7: Well, a little bit of both, I think. I think the first step, which I'd love people to take, is start acting as much as you can and where you can as a consumer. Now, I realize that's hard. You know, if you're being rolled in for an emergency appendectomy, it's hard to say, hey, what what's this going to cost this very cheaper place? Um, but if you don't start asking that, you find you end up where one person in the book ended up, being rolled in for an emergency appendectomy, and being asked for a credit card before they did the <laughs> oh, surgery geez. while she was in her gown. Yeah. And being handed a cell phone and said, call a friend to give us a credit card. Oh, Otherwise, my word. No surgery, right? Yeah. So I think where we can, it's important to start acting like consumers and feel empowered to do that. And I think the thing is, you should partner with your doctor in doing that because your, your doctor knows about the quality. You may not. Your doctor knows. Is this test essential now?
4: Mm-hmm. You
7: may not. So, I partnership with physicians is really important because many of them are as frustrated with this profit-taking system as as we are. Um, beyond that, though, I hope our our activism as consumers will send a message to our representatives that this matters to us. That we can't bear these costs anymore. So, instead of just having you know hearings every time. There's an EpiPen or Martin Shkreli moment um, They actually do something about things like drug prices and hospital prices. There are the tools at the state and at the federal level to, to act on these if, if we send a message to our representatives that we want action and we don't want just hearings. So Medicare could be allowed to uh, negotiate drug prices. There has been in the past bipartisan support for that. We could allow uh, drug importations, which, you know, we would pay Canadian prices instead of U.S. prices, mm. which are half as much. Now, yeah. uh, both both Democratic, there's a, a bipartisan bill um, in process, uh, Senators McCain and Klubacher, to support that. Okay, we could do that too. Um, so there are solutions, but there hasn't been the voter pressure to address them. So part of what I'm saying is next round of elections, we should all be um, good health care voters and find out from our representatives, what are you going to do about this? No, no more hearings, no more, um, yeah. you know, waving hands and, and you know, having uh, some pharma exec on the stand for a day. Um, let's, let's take action because there are
2: actions. Because right. all we hear instead is about repeal and replace. And yet um, the reality is, is then, OK, so then what? So now we've got the lasso around the tiger. Now what? Now what do you do? Um, Elizabeth, this is uh, – it's such an important conversation and I, I, I'll have to have you back for sure and we'll get a will get a better line with you. Um, but I appreciate your time. So recommend people take seriously what you're talking about. Go get the book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back – And uh, we will take a break, come back, and I'll do a little Coach's Corner lessons from, you know, spending two days in the hospital. Really, folks, we got to take our lives back in, you know, not just going after protecting our own health, but in fighting for our own uh, pocketbook as well. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
9: Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
2: Welcome back friends to the Matt Townsend show. So here's the deal my friends, uh medical world, you know, not easy. And if you know nothing about it, if you don't have any family members that are doctors, if you if you're not, you know, good at at uh, medical issues, you may you may be blind to a lot of what's going on. But uh, let me give you some lessons that I have gone through just in the last now, by the way, nine months, because if you've been following the show at all, I don't know what it is. It's about every three months. Dr. Matt disappears for four days. And um, we've and here's the funny thing about it. Now that I've had my last little bout with pancreatitis, it's all been the same issue. So uh, I thought I had kidney stones a month ago, a month and a half ago. They weren't kidney stones. It was all part of the same problem, pancreatitis, which was really all it goes back. I don't know if you remember about six months ago, I had an endoscopy where they went in and checked out my gut and, you know, what? all for, all part of the exact same problem. And so but I'm not connecting these things because I feel pressure here that so they go do a uh, you know, an evaluation there, and I fill this, and I had kidney stones nine years ago, and blah, 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 blah. And none of them seem related until I've had this last episode. And so let me just give you my lessons, okay, overall about healthcare. You have got to have one person in your life that you trust medically to be the decipherer of what the doctors are saying. And if that's your general practitioner, you've got to have one doctor that you love. So what I suggest is you really find your primary care physician and you get one you like and you go to him regularly. And it's hard because none I mean, so I think a lot of people don't have a primary care physician that they relate to. I have one that I, I have gotten to know over the last 10 years that I trust him totally the problem is then you have an acute issue like pain and like when i was passing kidney stones i just ran to an emergency room and i didn't make sure that the the emergency room effectively communicated with him and that pay i paid for that 9 years ago because the, I, they they didn't hand it off as well as they needed to but So make sure that you have a primary care physician, learn to communicate what you're actually feeling. And the funny thing about the doctors is um, I have a neighbor that is an emergency room physician and he came over to see me before I went to the hospital and he looked at me and he's like, he's a friend, but he's like, dude, you look horrible. So if I just had to admit you just because of how you look right now, you're being admitted. But, um, But then I explained what was happening to me. And the signs, the way I was explaining it, because I didn't have a language like he did, is it sounded like I was having chest pain because it was in my chest area, right? Chest. And it was radiating up to my shoulder, which is all the code word for the guys having a heart attack. So then that terrified him. So, but the reality was I wasn't having heart pain and it wasn't radiating – down my left arm and my shoulder, it was radiating to my back, which is a normal part of my pancreatic issue. Anyway, so what I guess I'm saying is you've got to learn the language you've got. I I get it. Doctors should learn it first, right? That when I say I'm having chest pain, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily having a heart attack. I'm having pain in my chest area. They could actually ask more questions. But I also have learned through the process that I need to be more informed that every procedure I've had and every time I've gone down for the last year with really bad sickness, um, those three times it was all related to the exact same thing. My lack of energy for the last year wasn't just related to my sleep. It's been related to the fact that I probably have gallstones or gallbladder issues. And so once I start to figure this out, and then what works, I knew in the hospital when they're telling me, yeah, go ahead and have some go ahead and have a nice rich pasta dinner. I knew I couldn't. I knew I couldn't. So I should have pushed back and say who's ordering that I who's putting this on my order and talk to the doctor and the nurse. And it's funny you have a call button but I didn't want to I didn't want to annoy anybody. And But I should have pushed my button a whole lot more and been talking to my doctors and said, what about this? And been more active, especially once the acute pain was gone. The funny thing about my two and a half days in the hospital, the pain was gone in the first hour. So then I sat there for two and a half more days and I should have been trying to deal with it or my people around me should have been trying to deal with it. And um, we didn't push on that. And so... Meanwhile, I should have been calling my primary care physician because if he had been more involved, he, he's such a champion of me and knows me. He would have fought like a dog, but he would have been an informed fighter for me. So let's not assume the doctors know. And let's not even assume they, they necessarily care. I mean, I know they do care, but they, they may not care like your primary care physician cares. So find one. And if it's a family member, I have the benefit of having two or three medical doctors in my family, and they're great. Um, But get them more involved and let them ask the questions. Like my father-in-law wanted to see all my charts. He wanted to see everything. So make, make sure you get the people around you that help you. And don't just buy the line that the doctors know, okay? A little rant for you right there. We'll take a break, my friends. Good to be back. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, hopefully, and love stronger, lead healthier lives. We'll be right back.
0: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
10: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now. On BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Yes, Dr. Matt is back in the seat. Driving the shift. You know, you guys have, you managed the show incredibly well. I wish I could have listened to it. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Actually, that was for us. Oh. You can listen to the podcast.
2: Yeah. The funny thing is, um, when you were, when I was on these painkillers, you don't, your brain doesn't work right. So all I really could do is listen to or watch Netflix. And what this is one thing I realized about talking about medical care in the United States. There's a very fine line between um, drug addicts and their method of pain management that I learned on Netflix and um, medical care providers. Again, it, it's, it's a far stretch, but I'm sitting there thinking the guy that's drawing my blood, they're trying to put an IV in me. It took four tries. And not to brag, but I got some big, juicy, meaty veins. But he just kept missing them. Yet the drug dealer could hit a vein a mile away. By the way, both of them are trying to alleviate pain in their patient. Both are pushing morphine of some sort or codeine. I think the racket is in the medical world, where else are you going to go? You can't go – to the local corner to get your fix. That's not the healthy way to do it. So you go to your local hospital to get the pain to go away. And what are they going to do? They got you because you're in pain. You're walking in on your tippy toes. By the way, speaking
3: of corner drugstores, don't you think it's kind of ironic that back in the day, and there are probably still, that, that's still some that still exist, that uh, when you went to your pharmacist to get your medicine, yeah. there was also an ice cream parlor there.
2: In fact, there's one still in uh, uh, just down south. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's it was it was a different time. Your drugstore, because sure, we'll give you a little. What you need some, you know, you need some painkiller. You need some morphine. Great. Do you want a smoothie? Not a smoothie. Do you want Want a some rocky road? (laughs) Do you want a banana float with that? Well, sure. If I can, why not do both? Um, Anyway, so I'm back. I'm back, and. It's I don't know. It's I feel blessed. I feel lucky, and it was really not a big issue. We still are trying to figure out what it what caused it, but I'll guarantee you it's gallstones. And I guarantee, probably somewhere down the road, I'll have a, f- a surgery that will take care of all of that.
3: By the way, we missed your birthday, or you missed your birthday on the show. that oh, was great. So you're like a big fan of birthday spankings. <laughs> so we thought. Yes. Oh, well, how old are you? Forty eight. Forty eight. Okay.
2: No, you know what? We we don't need that.
3: No. You you don't want to go all the way? Ouch. That hurts.
2: All right. Uh,
3: We'll get the other uh, 44 (laughs) later on.
2: That is what's interesting is when you're on the ground writhing in pain, nothing could make me feel better. Like my wife would gently put her arm on me to help calm me and I'm like, get your hand off of me. My kids bouncing a ball in the other room was driving me crazy. So when you finally get to the hospital, you're like, ah, it's so quiet on this floor.
3: But then the beeping starts. Beep.
2: Beep. Yeah. And the waking up, every hour, every four hours, they wake you up and they they open the door really slowly. And they look at you and you look at them. And then it's like, hey, I have to say something to them to break the ice because I feel weird when they're just staring at me.
3: Just say, go away. Well, at least they open the door quietly.
2: My wife knife. is
3: delivering and she's trying to get some sleep. Yeah.
2: They'll just burst in. I know. And they come in and this and then what else is weird is they have to draw blood every morning and you have a big port on your arm that you'd think they'd be able to get blood out of because it's already open and they have to stab you again. So I feel bad for all these women that have been doing this. Honestly, I was not. I, the pain was just an, an acute, tiny moment of pain. That happened like four times. But women that are in there every, you know, couple of years with a new baby, holy cow, tough cookies, tough cookies. So I'm never complaining about that again. Um, We got a great show today. We're going to be talking about online security and where we should focus our attention because a lot of times we keep trying to get our teen to regulate, you know, regulate your use of your technology and make sure you're not looking at things. But there is a new app that is maybe going to put the focus back on parents and par- parenting controls. And, and it's, it's pretty interesting stuff we'll be talking about. If you have a teenager and you're struggling with how do you make, keep it safe for them to be online, you will definitely want to listen up to that as we talk about online security. Um, We'll get to all of that fun, plus, of course, some of our empty news from the Matt Townsend show, including uh, store owner and employees are charged with vandalizing cars. Maybe not the best way to draw traffic into your business. And um, charges have been dismissed against a man accused of stealing his mom's stew. Mm. You know, that's
3: something to stew about. (laughs)
2: So we're still using the laugh track, huh? I've been gone four days, and we're still using that.
3: Well, if by laugh track you mean live audience genuine laughter, then yeah, we are. Okay.
2: Boy, not not a lot has changed. Like, I thought some things would have changed. Wrong. Anyway, good times. By the way, another real in- interesting thing. I realized how unaddicted to my technology I really am. Everyone throws that out like you're all addicted. To, but you know what? I'm really not. So I was in the hospital and didn't even hardly turn my TV on. Didn't hardly turn my phone on. didn't. I just sat there thinking of you guys. Aw. Town, town,
5: town, what was that what about happened? not With being the, addicted? What, yeah, we'll need a Town Town update.
2: I'll give you a Town Town update. It's very simple. Hardly town touch the thing town. anymore. Wow. But I still have 100% satisfaction, hmm. up to 145,000 town members.
3: Isn't that because you're Taunton, you're Navy. basically missing in action? That's why so everybody's so happy?
5: Absentee leadership.
2: Yeah. What I'm, I'm, just, I'm at this point where i got to decide if I want to let the disaster start happening. And I'm not up for that. Oh, come on. They're fun. No. But I did find, I did a lot of, I listened to some great articles. Hmm. I found... I found a new light in my life. Isn't the show Last
3: Man on Earth based on your app? Like there was this cataclysmic yeah, plague.
2: Yeah, plague Yeah. And, and then, now there are only a few people left. And then I built Townsend Abbey on SimCity. Life is good. Is it warm in here or am I just running my fever still? Just your fever. Okay. Fever. Just wanted to check that real fast. Okay, let's get to the headlines from Terry South. Find out what else we need to be worried about. Uh, and then we'll we'll get uh, we'll get back to the
5: good crazy stuff. There were more than 850 new homeowners in the first three months. Uh, 850 thousand new homeowners in the first three months of 2017 compared to 365 thousand new renters. Although the U.S. homeownership rate of 63.6 percent is near a historic low, the first quarter was the first time the number of homeowners has grown faster than renters since 2006. In 2016, the homeownership rate fell to its lowest point since 1965, part of a trend of young Americans choosing to rent instead of buy their homes. However, with growing consumer confidence and increased wages, the market is seeing many more first-time home buyers this year. Contrary to what, is, what the hordes of celiac disease-free Americans going gluten-free may suggest, Ditching gluten isn't a promised path to good health and a beach body. A new study presented at the annual meeting of the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology and a bunch of other stuff revealed (laughs) that a gluten-free diet might actually increase the risk of obesity. Ah. This out of The Guardian. It isn't the first study to cast out on the gluten-free diet hype. Uh, A researcher of celiac disease at Columbia University told The Guardian that a gluten-free diet is in no way intrinsically healthy or unhealthy. Other studies have shown that gluten-free food is about the same, nutritionally speaking, as foods containing gluten. Which means people think gluten and for whatever reason they think low-calorie, fat-free, yeah. and it's just food. <laughs> so you're eating all this food and you might get fat. Yeah.
2: What that tells us is we don't know what the heck we're talking about.
5: Well, that and...
2: We're clueless and they're marketing us... Yeah. And by the way, gluten's a big issue for people that really are allergic. But have celiac disease, yeah. Yeah.
5: But if not... You're doing it because it's trendy. Alternative facts. Right. Stan Weston. ...whose concept for a military action figure became the heroic G.I. Joe... ...one of the most popular toys ever produced... ...died on May 1st at his home in Santa Monica, California... ...due to complications from surgery. Oh. He was 84 years old. 1963, Mr. Western brought Hasbro... ...what he called a complete military package... ...that could be developed around rugged-looking scale dolls for boys... ...complete with military wardrobes to scale... ...military headgear to scale... ...military weapons and vehicles to scale... And uh, all the amenities that go with that. His point is accessories, right? Accessorize! Hasbro was kind of looking for their boy version of Barbie. Yeah, Barbie had all the accessories. The Dreamhouse. Dude, the I
2: had that first G.I. Joe then.
5: Yeah, that was the size of a Barbie. Yeah. I had all the ones that were three and three. Did yours have inches. like the real hair? Well, no, mine were the action figures. The, yeah. the short. Oh, the short yeah yeah, 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 the ones that were like really awesome and had a right. cartoon. Yours was like, you know noble and mine was like
2: noble God. muscly and had real hair and if you rubbed it it would rub off
5: did yours fight cobra
2: i don't remember yours probably Co- no, just no, i remember cobra G- yeah okay but I mine mine let though. me just tell you because oh. my sisters had barbies they loved my gi joe right i don't know what it was and he looked so good driving that car
5: well he was more rugged than ken yeah.
2: Not a lot.
5: So yeah. as payment, Hasbro offered him $75,000 or a tiny royalty fee that was below the industry norm because he was new to the toy business. His do- This is all from his daughter. Eventually, he asked for $100,000 and Hasbro agreed. When he saw the toy line at the next year at the 1964 Toy Fair, he knew he made a horrible <laughs> choice. Because if he would have got the royalties, he would add his piece of the hundred million whatever right, he, right. amount of money. He later they had a uh, federal lawsuit. This was in 2015, and they settled out of court. So he got something. Okay. But now he's since died. But he was also for uh, you know people of a certain age. He's also had a huge had a, a part in creating the Thundercats toy line. Also, really, don't
2: remember Thundercats.
5: See, I do. I've watched them recently. I like the Thundercats. Oh, cool. Also. Uh, that's all. Go on.
2: No, that's it? Really? There you go. G. It's I that Joe. simple? Uh, G.I. Joe was my – because he really was – I remember the G.I. Joe Jeep. Mm-hmm. And then Barbie could pull up in her vet or her motorhome. My sister's at her motorhome. Oh, wow. And my my G.I. Joe could meet her for a camping trip. And G.I. Joe would pull up in his Jeep, of course, and he'd have all the gear. Oh, wow. And the guns and everything yeah. you need. And then he and Barbie would just – they would – they'd have really nice platonic – Camping trips, of course. That's how that works. <laughs> it was such a, it was such a cleaner time back then. Yeah.
5: You know what I mean? Everything
2: right. was just easier.
5: Mm-hmm. I miss old GI Joe. See, all my all my little three and a quarter inch action figures yeah. had their kung fu grip and do you remember?
2: But do you remember when guns? you could take maybe a an eight inch doll? I never
5: had that toy because it was a doll. Ever?
2: No, but it wasn't a doll. It was an action figure yeah, with a jeep. But when And guns I, and a walkie-talkie when I and was a
5: flamethrower. When I was a kid, there was a uh, a court case over how the IRS was going to classify certain toys. Oh, boy. And there was a difference tax-wise between toy and action figure. Hasbro fought like crazy to keep their toy from being called a doll because they figure boys wouldn't want to play with a doll. Sure, right. So they, it's an action figure. Ah. And so they went to court over that, and I believe they lost.
2: Yeah. But riddle me this. hmm how could this can only happen in a child's mind? Where because I had a GI Joe, yes, and then I had a Lone Ranger horse, mm-hmm. Tonto as well. Uh, I didn't have Tonto, but um, when I found out what Tonto means in Spanish, Tonto, yeah, it means stupid, yeah. <laughs> um, which kind That's of always rude. bugged me, but um, but I had my GI Joe could ride my Lone Ranger horse, right. And then they could actually both for some – how they could fit into – The Jeep? Into like my ambulance, okay. which was made for smaller hmm. figurines. Hmm. Even though G.I. Joe was like uh, two feet taller than my – Ambulance helpers. You could still get them in, there. in my mind. It all worked together, right? And we could still send a SWAT unit out because SWAT was a big show and on television back in the day,
4: right? It which might were be really back, all my the
2: they were all my green GI Joe action figures, but they were all about five inches tall, mm-hmm. and all of these things could play together, right? Why can't we do that anymore? We can't have people of certain colors playing together, yeah. certain. uh political standing, religious affiliations. They I, can't play together. But in my little brain, it all you, works. It all works. And Barbie could feel safe with Joe. And go camping and have a platonic camping trip. And nobody would be harmed. What's
5: happening to this world? Platonic camping.
2: Trip. This was locker room talk. Certainly I'm not proud of it. Yeah. I tried to keep it clean. But G.I. Joe is a very respectable, honorable person. May he rest in peace.
5: Are oh, we still around. It was the creator that passed away. It's just the creator.
2: Yeah, the creator who created G.I. Joe and this yeah. concept.
5: And then signed a horrible licensing deal yeah. for hundred grand instead See, of waiting See, back then the they millions. didn't
2: know. They didn't know. No, had no it's idea. all about the merchandising. Now you know the movies are are half as important as the merchandising. Right. Because – Half the movies were just
5: – At the end of the obituary, they mentioned two of the, the movies they made for G.I. Joe and they pointed out the money and it's really kind of depressing that the money – it only made that much. <laughs> but they're, they're trying to make it sound like yeah. it was positive and it really wasn't. So.
2: But yeah. But it will come back. It will come back. We'll see. Well, maybe parents won't want a G.I. Joe. No. Maybe it's now going to be – you know It's the
5: fidget toys.
2: Peace cord.
5: Care, Care bears. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> hey, uh, we'll take a break.
2: When we come back, we're going to be talking online security for your kids. What's the best approach to, to shore up and tighten up your security so your kids aren't you know seeing stuff they shouldn't be seeing online? Is it up to the kids? Is it up to you? Is it up to both of you? Stick with us. We'll uh, cut through that in a minute. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, the internet has never been more accessible, more enticing, and today's teens are more exposed to it than ever before, than any generation previous to them. And because of this, many teens are not prepared to handle... All of the different risks of online interactions, which may include, by the way, cyberbullying, sexual exchanges, viewing inappropriate content. In response to the risk, uh, new parental control um, apps are being created, right, to help parents manage the control and access of these uh, these different activities to their children. But another problem that might be coming up is are we actually not teaching our children how to handle – These scenarios when they come up in other situations, when they come up at friends' houses, by just keeping them from the content – is it enough to actually create a healthy child that can grow into adulthood and can learn to manage the, the issues on their own when they're not being supervised? So to, here to help us talk about that is Dr. Pamela Wisniewski, uh, and she is, uh, has published substantially um, a lot of research relating to adolescent online interactions and safety risks and is currently an assistant professor at the University of Central Florida. And she has a wonderful website, by the way, pamspam.com pamspam.com to kind of help us sort through a lot of these things. Uh, Dr. Wisniewski, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Now you've pushed me to update my website.
2: <laughs> I know. Oh, do we, now you've got to get on it, huh? So, I know, right? So, Pam, tell me about this. I have six kids, and my biggest fear and kind of, I guess, knowledge is that I know I'm not doing enough on the on the Internet front. I don't know they're smarter than me in many regards they they're they're faster than me they they understand it better than i do and i feel like i'm fairly conscientious about it are are we are we are we not doing this very effectively are we handling this effectively
11: well,
0: matt i think what you just said really hits the nail on the head um because that's really what we hear from a lot of parents and the overarching theme when we talk to parents is that they're scared yeah. um and As a result of that, there's a lot of fear-based, reactionary parenting around online technologies and and how we should best keep our teens safe online. Um, However, one of the things that I try to do in my work is to bring to light the idea that as parents, if we operate based on fear, sometimes we don't necessarily do the best parenting. So we need to kind of put aside our own fears and treat this as any other type of um, risk situation that we're trying to teach our teens how to handle. Um, because as teens are growing up into adults, we're trying to teach them the maturity levels and the risk decision-making process so they, they can eventually go out in the world and protect themselves.
2: Hmm. Such great advice. And I guess part of that is we just have to – we, we, we we 're so afraid because we don't know, and then we hear all this hype and we and we hear the one story here or the crazy story there um that that it, it begets the fear, but behind the fear exactly. there's actual you know there's 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 tools there's devices so where do, where would be the best place to start putting our emotion um our healthier emotion to to when it comes to technology in our kids
0: right well, I think the first step is to try to break through this kind of epidemic panic of online safety and how our teens are at at such high levels of risk because a lot of the statistics that we see are a little bit misleading because we ask teens have you ever been exposed to a stranger requesting a sexual solicitation online and we come up with some percentage statistic that represents the population but what we don't ask teens as often is Well, when somebody asked you for that naked picture what did you do Hmm. and in one of my studies which was a diary study over the course of two months i asked teens that and in most cases teens were actually being able to handle some of these risks where they would say well so and so requested a naked picture or or some other kind of risk scenario and they said no i'm not going to give you that and so we have to realize that to some extent teens are dealing with some of these risks More independently than as parents, we think they may be. Hmm. Um, So that's one of the first things is to then, as parents, not necessarily trust our teens to go online and be unmediated and do whatever, because maturity level of teens vary drastically. Right. But to know our teens and to parent based on who our teens are, Um, and also to not just. Take this knee-jerk of reaction of trying to become these authoritarian parents because we're scared. Oh yeah. Um, and and to and to own our own fear to know that well I didn't have this growing up and all of the content the self-harm and the pornography I wasn't inundated with this every day and so it scares me but this is the world that my teens living in and having those conversations be open and non-judgmental. So that teens are willing to come to us when they encounter something that that they might be uncomfortable with, and they need our help disentangling of hmm. this online world.
2: Well, and almost not shaming them, like um, because it's um, what we do is we we have fear around it, and that intensity tells our children. That it's bad and that if they go near it, it's bad. But we, instead, we're not teaching them what to do when they see it, how to report to parents that, and, that, and, and then trusting that they can get through it. I mean, I just see little things like some children, they just lack the self-esteem to be mm-hmm. able to say no or – right. and, and then, then that we ought to be dealing with the self-esteem because it takes some strength to say no. And exactly. or and then not because too if we've shamed the issue, if we sh- if we shamed that if you've looked at a bad picture online, you're going to he double hockey sticks and you're <laughs> never going to survive. Um, then th- they might start to hide it, and once they start hiding this stuff, that seems like when it gets the most right. dangerous.
0: And, and and really, as parents, we're the ones shutting down the conversation. Um, in the diary study, we had teens. Report fairly low-level risk activities such as playing a violent video game and then having parents be very Judgmental of them Mm. openly to the teen and within their own diary entries to us And then later on we had teens report higher risk activities such as using the internet to to figure out how to use marijuana to get intoxicated Um, And when we asked teens, well, did you talk to your parents about this? Um, The response was like, well, heck no. <laughs> yeah, right. Because if you can't talk to your parents about something like, "Oh, well, this picture just filtered into my my news feed from social media and I it wasn't I didn't have anything to do with it. It just was there because one of my friends and I'm getting in trouble for it," then that shuts down the conversation.
2: It really is. And I guess the job is then of the parents maybe we we need to Think less about controls and more about competencies and, mm-hmm. and, and get the kids' competencies up and, I guess, the trust up so they'll talk to us about it. It And and also be okay, I found, not knowing. Like my, my son, we had an incredible conversation a while ago about the drugs that are being done. Um, right. In his high school and the friends that have dabbled in it and it was his way of and I, I took it more like, holy cow, he trusts me and I need to be really careful now not to like tighten the noose and and but but he's telling me something. So if, he, if I if I can let him just talk without me shutting it down and using and having so much fear that he never wants to come back to me, then I've got I've got an angle in.
0: Right, sounds like you're a great dad.
2: Well, you know what? I was was because I was medicated in the, in the hospital. He had nowhere to go. <laughs> he had to just talk to me. Um, mm. Talk about talk about the risks. Um, so, because uh, parents are terrified about it anyway. What what are the risks that are the that are fairly easily fixable? Or what apps should we be using? What should be the approach to the technology? as far as a healthy relationship with our kids.
0: Right. And and that was really the hard thing that we found in our research, because one of the things that I wanted to do after we kind of have this conceptual model of how to parent in offline context, I wanted to see, well, what tools are available to help us with reinforcing these positive parenting practices, such as open and honest and nonjudgmental communication, giving our teens uh, some level of agency in their own behaviors and, and, and building trust relationships and helping them cope. And the sad thing was, after we looked at 75 different apps for mobile online safety, we found the opposite story of where the designs of these apps tended to focus on more of the draconian authoritarian parenting models of of trying to very closely monitor teens as if we don't trust them and to restrict their behaviors as to keep them safe from Mm. encountering any online risks. Um, And very few of these apps had any kind of features that focused on helping the teen learn, uh, regulate their own impulse control, self-monitor, or cope with risks. Uh, for instance, the most common feature for risk coping for teens was an SOS feature to say, oh, get help from a trusted adult, basically telling teens that, hey, you can't handle this on your own. Yeah. You need to get help. And and so what we did in our research is, is try to bring light to the values that are currently being embedded in the design of the apps that are currently on the market
2: isn't it interesting because so you we all make an assumption right and and the assumption it sounds like all the app users are making is you need to restrict you need to control they're incapable of handling a lot of things their own learning their own impulse control their own self-monitoring and knowing when to get help but um So, really, what you're saying, too, I guess, is we probably need to change a little bit of the paradigm about how we see our kids. Exactly. I mean, mean, it's different between an um, 8-year-old and an 18-year-old, but sometimes it's not too different between an 18-year-old and a 28-year-old. I mean, it's –
0: Exactly. Everybody's different. And and it really depends on the individual child and and the age of the child. And I I don't – I don't say that I'm an expert in in parenting, so I don't want to give a parent any particular advice because I think parents do that too often and there's too much parent shaming in the world. But from from specifically a design perspective, what I saw is that these apps are being developed more than likely by adults, not Mm -hmm. teens, um, and adults who are scared. And so when when we're scared we retreat we restrict we monitor we we shut down um and using that model as a way to tell teens this is how you have to stay safe is like telling them you know you can't go outside or we're never going to let you drive a car like of course there's risks associated with any thing we do or interactions we take um but because we're so scared as adults of these online technologies, this is the approach that we tend to take. Hmm.
2: So good. I mean, really, this is um, – it's got to be a curveball for the world because it's – again, it, it's this intersection of there are things that are dangerous and that the kids can't handle. And in a way, they're more effective at accessing it and managing it and getting to it than maybe their parents might be. Um is this just generational? Do you think is this? Can you see where we had anything similar to this in any other cultural, you know, advancement? Yes
0: no, I mean, I think when TVs were first put in the home, um, people were concerned about the content that uh, we as children were being exposed to, and so a lot of the models we have for parental mediation around online technologies. Um, are actually derived from research that was done about mediating technology, uh, TV viewing. Um, so being able to co-view, sit together and watch a program with a child to help do instructive mediation, for instance, or restricting, saying no TV past bedtime. Mm. Um, however, we do have to update these models because the technologies now are much more interactive and open up the home to potential potentially dangerous strangers. And so while there's always been disruptive technologies that cause fear, I I mean there there is a reason for the fear. It's just a matter of making sure we're managing that well and and not taking actions based solely on that. Yeah. That.
2: Oh boy, boy. I mean I I think that's it. And and make sure the pendulum that we don't just keep swinging to the other extreme. Give us some um before we take a break. Talk a little bit about what are some of this the actual skills that the teens should be learning to to be able to cope with and be more resilient.
0: Well, um for instance, one of the things that I've seen um that are, that's more novel is there was a teen, a fifteen-year-old girl, who created an app called Rethink, and the purpose of this is kind of like a keylogger, where it would detect any potentially mal- malicious, malicious messages that a teen might be sending, and, and it's essentially kind of like a drunk texting app, where it says, "Are you sure you want to send this message?" Huh. and and it actually helped teens be more aware of their own behaviors and monitor monitor their own impulses, and. I thought that was wonderful because it was completely coming from a different direction than we come as parents right yeah um what we do as parents is we develop apps that a child will that will install on our child's phone possibly in covert mode so they maybe not don't even know it exists so it acts like a trojan horse and then a parent can receive any text message that the teen sends or receives on their phone um and in doing that, it, it causes even more fear because we get the the messages that are a little bit on the uncomfortable side, but maybe developmentally okay, like, hey, I think you're hot. Do you think I'm hot? To the, oh, wait, my teen just sent an explicit picture. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so we as parents want to be careful because if we're reacting to the more developmentally like risky, but appropriate behaviors. Um, we might not be preparing ourselves for or teaching teens how to to not get to that next level of risk.
2: Mm, That's so good. And again, that's an interesting one because it comes from a teen, uh, you know, and understanding, hey, I got to rethink this. I've got to actually – I got to see how this actually works for me. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with Pamela Wisniewski. If you go to her website, pamspam.com, great uh, resources. She's talking about some research she's been doing on, you know, is it is it enough to just control your children's access to these devices? Or at some point, do you really need to empower them to learn to self-regulate, to manage it and to be resilient to these these uh, this use of technology? At some point, they're going to have to grow up and know how to handle it, right? We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are talking with Dr. Pamela Wisneski, and she is um, she has a wonderful website. Pamspam.com is a researcher who has been studying and publishing articles on how, basically, how do we manage um, the use of technology and our child's, our children's use of technology? Is it better to just, you know, kind of clamp down, get one of the 75 apps out there, that are really about helping restrict their use and is res- is use restriction the key um, or is it some other way of understanding and empowering the child uh, I think Pamela she's not saying just don't restrict she's saying in the end these kids are going to have to learn a, a variety of things, right? They're going to have to learn some self-regulation. They're going to have to learn impulse control. They're going to have to learn monitoring, how to, how to actually count how many minutes they're actually using it so they are informed there. They're going to have to know when they've crossed boundaries. And, and, and so we've asked her to come join us and to walk us through some, some of the things we can do that would help. Pam, again, thanks for being with us.
0: Sure, thank you for having me.
2: What, uh, when you look at it, is because, like, one thing I notice about my phone is that I don't necessarily know how much I'm using it. And I think I'm hardly using it at all, but then I get complaints from people around me that I'm always using it.
0: Right. And, and there's actually some research saying that parents um, are just as guilty of being addicted to their phones, if not more, than mm. their teens. And that does affect the parent-teen relationship. Um, so really what I'm saying is when we're, we're using these parental control apps on our teens' phones, we just want to make sure that we're not using this kind of set it and forget it mentality of like, oh, well, I'm going to install this and my teen's going to be safe now. Um, instead, as parents, we need to look at our own parenting values, like what we value in our parenting relationship offline, and to make sure that the values that we have aren't disrupted by some app that we install on our teen's phone. Hmm. For instance, if you're a parent and you don't believe that you should go into your teen's bedroom and open up in their diary and read it, then you probably wouldn't want to be the parent who installs one of these apps that then allows you to see all of their browsing history or all of their communications with their friends via their mobile phone. So really, I'm not saying that, you know, don't use any of these apps and they're not the solution. Um, You can actually customize them to to meet your needs, but the key is to not let them change how you parent.
2: Right. Because just because you have the technology now to do certain things doesn't mean it still jibes with with your value system. Exactly. That's a great and way to what, look it at.
0: And what you were saying about even just if we had tools where teens just and even adults could help self-monitor things like their their mobile phone usage, which there are some that are out there, but they're mostly geared towards um, towards adults instead of teens. There is one um, that I uh, somebody recently emailed me about that was a digital coach for teens to help them monitor their own use, uh, then that's, that's really something that could be beneficial. I'm also working with another company called Raccoon, who has an iOS app that helps parents and teens be able to negotiate some of the risky content that teens see via social media. And one of the things that I like about that app is that it has an interface for both the parent and the teen, so the teen knows that they're being monitored and they get the same risk notifications as the parent would so it's not asymmetric in terms of you know the parent is doing this covert level of monitoring Hmm. so even just basic things like that or some of the apps that we saw had negotiation features where they set restrictions but a teen could request more time if they did chores yeah so so being able to embed some of these things that don't make the app so draconian where you know teens hate them because we actually um, looked at the reviews posted on Google Play by teens and children, and and some of the things that we saw were that the teens thought that these apps were just overly restrictive to the point where they weren't able to even do their homework mm. um, or that they turned their parents into stalkers and <laughs> made it obvious that their parents just didn't trust them, and, and it hurt their relationship
2: with No, absolutely. Parents. It's really interesting because it's it's virtually it sounds like it's the same skills principally that parents would have needed fifty years ago, but um all all the technology is becoming is kind of the highlight of because like now we have to go renegotiate right, and we have to exactly. we have to build a shared vision with them, and we have to talk openly about and get on get together and be on the same page and mm-hmm. a lot of and it takes just as much responsibility for the parent i mean a lot of times. It seems like as parents, we, out of our fear, we we, we we show our fear. We then, you know, batten down the hatches and shut the thing down on them. But, but we're not being responsible in learning how to talk with our kids about it, in staying on it daily, you know, understanding the technology. We have to know, know how to communicate, how to negotiate, how okay. to adjust. I mean, there's a lot of these basic... Relational skills that are now being pushed to the limit.
0: Exactly. And and the problem is that as parents we're already overwhelmed oh. and too busy. And who has the time to go through my social media news feed every day, much less also that of my teen? Right. Um and so really the answer is that there's no simple solution. It's yeah. going to be hard. And so we have to 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 own that and find ways to to move the needle without necessarily saying that we're going to solve the problem.
2: Yeah. Well, and maybe it's a problem that doesn't solve. It's like, it's like sickness. It's like you're, you just have to figure it out. You, you may, you know, you may just be different than your friends. And so certain things won't work as well for you, but others will. And I mean, there's some kids too that have an immense um, conscience and their conscience is beating them up. And yet if we mm-hmm. don't trust them and we don't trust that they can, there's a lot of stuff that the kids would probably love to do on their own um, yeah. just because they might be too embarrassed to share with you what they just saw, but they don't ever want to see it again. And so right. we, they also need access to tools and their own learning.
0: Right. And and if we approach this from technology can empower teens, um, it provides a level of social support and resources that they might not have otherwise. And, and we also see this as a risk versus benefit model as opposed to just focusing on the risk, because when we restrict teens online and they're not allowed to go online or, or to have conversations with different types of people, then we're really restricting their worldview as well, yeah. um, which Obviously, for, for younger te- for teens, that might make sense. But as teens grow older, um, they're eventually going to get to exposed to it anyway. So why don't we kind of put on the training wheels and help teach them that before they we kind of just open it up? Oh, so for good. instance, there's a lot of um, parental control apps out there that are designed for younger children under the age of 13, um, and then are just kind of they're just left on their own after they turn 13 yeah. because we just don't know how to deal with the problem. So, how do we deal with those transitions effectively?
2: That's that's I mean that's that's the that's the rub right there. Pamela, we appreciate you. I think keep up the fight and keep trying to do the research and and uh, get that information out to us. I know we'll have you on again as you continue your exploration and journey. Again, Pamela Wisneski is her name. You can go to her website pamspam.com. We just put her on notice. Now she's got she's got to get there and get all of her stuff posted. Helping you folks um, make it through this. You're fine. You're fine. We can get on it. But do something, especially if, if it's been bothering you, what your kids might be seeing. That little conscience that we've all got, it's probably prompting us to go do something. And uh, maybe just talk forcing everyone to turn it off and talk for a bit. That might be the great beginning. We will take a break, my friends. When we come back, Caitlin Thomas will be joining us talking about weird talents. That's up next on The Matt Townsend Show. You know, it seems the way to get famous these days is to either have a really amazing talent... Or an incredibly weird one. So joining us is a person that has both amazing and weird talents. Caitlin oh. Thomas is here with us this morning to talk about some of the weird talents that she has seen. Yes. And maybe uh, maybe some things that we might want to share around the office.
11: Yeah, you know, I think everybody's got some weird talent. Oh, yeah. My dad has this incredible talent where you give him a word and immediately he can spit it out to you backwards. Really? Yes. I wish I could have brought him on the show today. Did to he
2: Did he have a head injury?
11: No. That's maybe. pretty neat. So maybe he could, fell on his head as a kid.
2: But that's a fun thing. Like, he yeah. can just immediately flip it.
11: And when I was a little girl, I thought it was the, the coolest thing, and we would just give him words all the time, and he could say them backwards. It's pretty amazing. That is amazing. My like, dad, you really should capitalize on this talent.
2: I don't know how he would. But... I don't know
11: how he would either. But again, weird talents. They get you on TV. Yeah, they do. I saw this one yeah. girl who could eyebrow dance. Like really? a pro, like a complete control, separate control. Like she could be doing one thing with her right eyebrow and another thing with her left eyebrow That's at the some same time. That's
2: serious control.
11: It was it was weird. Has,
2: could she jump her eyebrow from the right side of her face to the left yeah, side? Yeah, they
11: just switched places.
2: That's amazing. They just
11: up and ollie ooped you know?
2: <laughs> Little alley-oop.
11: Um, have you seen people be able to sing with their mouth closed? No. So Jessie J, she's some, like pop artist. There's this video of her of her singing one of her own songs with her mouth completely co- closed.
2: But have you ever been next to somebody that was singing and you wish they'd close their mouth? Right. Yeah.
11: Skills. I think it's different. I think it's different.
2: Totally different. Um.
11: Oh, this one's amazing. There's this little kid. He's like, I think they said he was seven or eight. Yeah. Living in Thailand. And he limbo skates.
5: So ah. he has skates
11: on and he like... Goes down into this like straddle and his entire top part of his body like flattens, he grabs his skates and he completely goes out into a straddle and his head's like inches above no, the ground and he goes under things. Like I that.
2: saw a lady that was serving like at a car service serving somebody dinner and she went down completely and then underneath the car
11: limbo skating limbo
2: skating and then came up on the other side and gave them their order
11: uh, with the food and didn't
2: drop the food no way yeah total that's see Wait. that
11: stuff's amazing
2: but then what's weird about the weird stuff is then it gets online and then you just watch it right like Jeff and I cannot get enough of this pimple popper
11: ew i hate the we just love popper. to oh, watch uh, pimples Matt.
2: being popped i mean it's weird but it's
11: it's weird um, i don't know Ew. oh my oh, god jeff turn it
2: off on we're jeff. doing this thing
11: I know there's people that can write backwards, like make really good animal impressions. I don't know, these are talents that can get could get you famous, at least internet famous. Well, and
2: at least get you your 15 minutes.
11: Your yeah, 15 minutes that of fame. Do we all want that?
2: Yeah. No. Nah. What,
11: what about you, Matt? What could what could give do you, you know your what? 15 minutes? Uh, well,
2: uh, this show is pretty much my 15 minutes of fame um, every day. But I I actually I can't do it now because of my sickness, but um, I can blow bubbles. Like, I can blow a bubble off of my tongue that floats in the air. And, like, so you see, like, spit off in your It's like a spit bubble. Yeah. But it floats on its own. Anyone can blow them off your lips.
11: Right, no, but yours, like, comes all the way out of your I mouth. I can
2: blow it off my mouth, and it can land on your paper, because then I can gently drift it, blowing it over to your paper.
11: Did you ever do that when you were a kid, like yes, in class? Yes, and the
2: ladies loved it.
11: Oh, I'm sure. Actually. I'm sure it was a hit.
2: Uh, that was back in the day before you, and you could irritate the people before, and the cops weren't called right. at school.
11: People weren't so sensitive. So that, that's
2: about it. But my wife can jiggle her eyes.
11: Oh, that was on my list. I saw that. That was like it's like, people
2: pretty
11: can weird. Like, re- move their eyes back and forth really, really fast. It looks like it hurts.
2: Yeah, it doesn't. But it, so apparently, good. but it it is strange.
11: It would give me a headache. I think.
2: I don't. I'm not like double jointed or anything like that. That's weird too. People yeah, I,
11: I mean, I have this one on here. Was There's this lady I saw on the internet that could turn her hand 360 degrees all the way around. Itself. Oh, why and would like, she do that? Or any other pretzel-like flexibility is just out of this world.
2: Jeff's got some major pretzel-like Jeff. Fe- flexibility.
11: Jeff, what are your weird talents? Jeff,
2: do that thing where you lift your leg over your head again. That was neat. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Go. <laughs> Wow. Ah. There it is. All the way around his how neck. How long do you want me to hold this? Yeah, let's do it till the end of the show. Yeah, you just hold the neck A couple 10. minutes. But I am doing my own show here in a few minutes. Oh, so. by the way, we've got to talk about weird talents. Jeff's got his own show. Yeah,
4: he, he does. He takes over
2: the last hour. So on next Fridays. hour right here on the Matt Townsend Show, screen cleaning is coming. And it's, it's ah. awesome. You learn everything about how to wash your windows, wash your television screen, your cell screen. Is that what it's about? No. Oh, Okay. No. Oh,
11: I was like, I thought I already did that one. Didn't we, I already talk about that one? you did. That we once.
3: put a spotlight on all entertainment that is good, and you know, because it can be tough to find sometimes. Yeah. But talk if you about look good. carefully,
2: exactly, and uh, we're gonna have Rod Gustafson That'll on the good. program. Oh. But your weird talent, honestly, is that you can take anything I say and turn it into a movie or a show theme.
11: That is. Oh, that's or a talent. That
2: came somewhere from.
1: Yeah, you
2: know, when you were talking about your pancreas, I immediately thought
3: of the Weird Al song, I Love My Pancreas.
2: See, again, who knows that?
11: I think this is a talent you could really capitalize on, Jeff. That's one of those weird talents that somebody's looking for. I'm not sure Matt's is something someone's looking no, for. mine's but not.
2: Mine's not. The bubble blind. That's okay,
11: blowing. Matt. We still love you anyway. Whatever. And we I'm hope back. you get feeling it's better. It's all
2: good. Hey, uh, thanks, Caitlin. That was yeah. uh, fun. Fun weird news.
11: Also, happy almost Mother's Day.
2: Yeah, moms. We'll
11: talk more about that on Monday. We thanks love for the you. reminder.
2: By the way, yeah. I still need to figure I'm out what I'm doing. I'm coming
11: back in on Monday. We're going to talk about talk moms. Talk moms
2: after Mother's Day. Yeah, that's just how we do it here. It's a little weird, but it's a talent. We will uh, take a break when we come back. A uh, Whole hour on screen cleaning. Friday Movies uh, with Jeffrey. Jeff, thanks, bud. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: In a world where people have a habit of mimicking what they see on television and in movies... One man goes too far. In a country where people are losing faith in government, one man, who also happens to be one of the world's biggest movie stars, comes to the rescue. And on a radio program dedicated to helping consumers find quality entertainment, one man fights to explain how movies are rated. Screen cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show with Jeff Simpson. Rated PG for Pretty Good. Wow! That's
3: exciting. It sounds like a kind of an intense show. I don't know if I can handle that. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. Uh, As we talked about last week, this is a brand new show. It's a show within a show. It's going to air every Friday, 9 a.m. on the Matt Townsend Show. We're uh, safely beneath the Matt Townsend Umbrella. And uh, we're super excited about it because we're going to be talking to you about everything entertainment and really shining a light on all that is good in entertainment. Having a hard time finding quality entertainment for your family? Well, you should listen to this show. Uh, you like Matt Townsend's show, but you you think it could be infused with a little humor? Then you're going to love this show. And uh, that's what screen cre- uh, screen cleaning is all about, excuse me. And we have a fantastic show ahead of us today. But before we get to what's going to be on the show, let's kick off things by giving you a recap of the latest and very best in entertainment news. The best parody news of the week. You know, anytime Saturday Night Live writes a clean and genuinely funny sketch, we like to mention it. And uh, the one that I really want to mention here is a spoof of the early 90s children's game show, Where in the World is Carmen
1: Sandiego?
6: Cause well, she used to be on TV, on like every single panel. Then one day, she, we all woke up, but she was no longer there. What could have happened? She is not on any channel. Tell me where
1: in the world is Kelly and Conway?
8: that's
3: sad in a way do you but i oh what a great uh, shot of nostalgia
8: there do you remember that show cole of course so now now we're in my wheelhouse i was a 90s kid i grew up with this show acapella was born right there as far as i'm <laughs> concerned
3: and they use that same acapella group to announce each of the categories like the warrant the clue just a great show anyway the best trailer parody news Uh, The new Star Wars trailer has been viewed around 34 million times, which means it was only a matter of time before a rabid fan would come out with an 8-bit trailer for The Last Jedi. Just listen to this music. Kind of makes you want to go and play Nintendo, doesn't it?
8: Yeah, I'm going to have to dig out that Super (laughs) NES, see what I have hidden up there. The
3: sad part about this, I mean, this guy does such a good job of, you know, copying the Star Wars Last Jedi trailer and making it seem like it's a video game. Mm -hmm. The sad thing is, we're never going to get to play this game on Nintendo or in 8-bit format. Nope. But uh, very entertaining and good job. This is a great trailer. Go check it out. The best mix-up news. I love this story. Cole, do you know who Aaron Taylor Johnson is?
8: Um, yes. Yeah, he's an actor. Uh, He was one of the Quicksilvers. So he was Quicksilver in the MCU as opposed to the Quicksilver in the X-Men ones, which was Evan Peters.
3: And he was also a superhero in another series that we can't mention the name for. um, Also true. But uh, he's he's been in a lot of movies lately. He almost was nominated for an Oscar last year. Well, he was recently on Stephen Colbert, and uh, he told the story of how director Olive, Oliver Stone mistook him for another actor to his benefit.
8: He was trying to explain to the other cast, like, you know, how he cast me. So I saw this fantastic performance of you. you it was just, you were playing cards, you were playing cards, and it was just really brilliant, and you, you did this thing, and you laid it down. And I was trying to think, well, what is that? And right at that time, 21 was really big, right? And I walked out kind of going, okay, great. And I was really embarrassed because he was kind of bragging in front of a bunch of people. And I was like, yeah, no, thanks for that. And I walked away going, he thought I was Jim Sturgis. Jim Sturgis did a fantastic performance, and that's the reason I got the job for Saturday. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that is awesome. Awesome. Oh, if only that
8: would happen to me. Get mistaken for someone famous and rich? Yes. Yeah. And then I get
3: get more money. Mm -hmm. So a best example of how not to fire someone, as you know, President Trump fired FBI Director James Comey. you fired. Yeah. And he probably uh, could have chosen a more tactful way of doing it. Let's just be honest, because Comey discovered he uh, the fact that he was out of a job by watching the news, not the way that you want to find out that you don't have a job anymore. Uh, And I have an interesting story about something like that that happened to me in my life just here in a minute because – well, first of all, let me tell you the best candidacy news. Actor Chris Pratt, when he heard that James Comey was uh, out of a job, was quick to offer up his services – uh, or at least the services of a fictional character he portrayed for in order to be considered for the FBI position. And uh, on Parks and Recreation, he kind of had this alternate character that he would slip into called Burt Macklin with the FBI. And so he took to Twitter and, you know, posted a video of him as Burt Macklin. So that could be exciting. Chris Pratt as uh, the FBI director. And now we're reading in uh, in other Hollywood news that The Rock—
8: Wants to maybe think about running for president. Who else? Who is a bigger name right now? (laughs) I know. In in the world, in everything, in all of your news.
3: Yeah, we teased that earlier on the show that uh, one of the biggest movie stars in the world is going to save the world. By, uh, from maybe. more
8: than just the San Andreas fault, but yes, from democracy, exactly. from everything.
3: And to save the beaches from explosions and bad guys. <laughs> I don't know of, of, of a lot of bad guys that show up at the beach, but uh, I think everybody's too chill there is the problem. Uh, so I mentioned I was going to uh, tell a story about that. I, I haven't been fired from a job through social media, but I have been broken up with uh, via email. And it was kind of sad, it was unexpected, and I thought it was a little lazy and insensitive. But you know what? It ended up being a blessing in disguise. Because I was dumped through an email, I didn't go back to that school. I instead transferred to Brigham Young University, where I met my now wife. And we are married with two beautiful daughters and a son do here any day so it was a blessing in disguise as I said and who knows maybe for director James Comey this will be a blessing in disguise and he'll get a job that's even bigger and better actually I don't know how much bigger you can get than the FBI director but maybe better so we wish you well director Comey and President Trump uh, maybe take another look at uh, your hiring and firing practices anyway that's the most of us, of us on a soapbox soap that you'll ever hear on screen cleaning. We'll take a quick break. When we return, we are going to be uh, we're going to be digging a little deeper into a couple of other news stories in a new segment. We'll give you the title when we come back. This is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson, the host, and I'm here with our wonderful board op and uh, movie encyclopedia, Cole Wissinger. Welcome back to the show, Cole. Always sounds so official when you say it like that, Jeff. (laughs) You know, we have a good time on this show. We we often will share funny or bizarre stories that, on the surface, seem just like that. They seem just like they're funny and bizarre. But if you really look carefully, there are lessons to be gleaned from others' mistakes. So we're going to dig a little deeper into a couple of stories in a new segment titled Dig a Little Deeper. When you sense a lesson's buried neat stories that you read, dig a little deeper. Dig
2: a little deeper.
3: We've got a story here about uh, this is an example of life imitating art. A Florida sheriff's deputy is out of a job after officials say he waved his firearm and stun gun while quoting lines from Denzel Washington's character in Training Day, a movie about a corrupt law enforcement officer. Authorities say Zipes rubbed his pistol and taser together in the direction of a convenience store in front of a police trainee. Zipes told investigators he was just trying to be funny. The report says Zipes twice pulled his firearm in an office setting, made a motion to draw his gun at a pizza delivery boy, and became upset after not receiving a free drink at a restaurant. See, now this is an example of, like we said, life imitating art in a negative way. And, I mean, obviously he lost his job, which is not a good thing, but probably the appropriate thing. And he kind of brought some embarrassment to the department, too, and all because he wanted to be cool and, you know you know, imitate this movie, which did not have a positive portrayal of a police officer. And, you know, unfortunately, there are so many more examples of life imitating art uh, in a negative way. And, you know, we don't want to get too deep into it, even though we are in uh, in this segment called Dig a Little Deeper, you know, with people killing others in movie theaters. And and it's it's so tragic when that happens. And luckily, nobody in this situation was hurt. And we just really encourage everybody to think about your actions uh, before you perform them. And really try not to mimic things that you see in movies unless there are things in movies that are positive, that are encouraging you to do things that will have an impact on your life and the lives of others in a positive way. Um, just think of examples in movies that you've seen. Why Look, at, look and seek out uh, – Look for and, and seek out good, uplifting movies. Cole, I'm just curious to know, have there been any movies that you've seen that have encouraged you to improve your life or have that had a positive impact on your life?
8: Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the great powers that movies can bring is to tell a story about something else that you can apply to your own life. When I was um, just getting ready to... Leave high school and go out and be on my own. I watched a dumb Adam Sandler movie called Click, (laughs) which on the surface just is full of his normal Adam Sandler isms. But and it's about this guy who gets a universal remote that can fast forward through the boring parts of his life to get to where he's successful. Great idea for a movie, by the way. Fantastic concept. Goes to bed, bath and beyond. Um, And Christopher Walken is waiting in the beyond section to give him this remote. Anyway, uh, so at the very, very end of the movie, though, um, it's been just this dumb comedy all throughout. And he realizes that he's just fast forwarded through all the important moments of his life. And he's like running through the rain trying to get back to his family because he misses them. And as I was getting ready to leave my home, you know, and I just realized I needed to spend more time with my family and 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 take not take for granted that they've always been there, and, and not even not even gloss over even the simplest moments that seem like they're mundane uh, to take advantage of every moment.
3: Well, good for you. So you you have an example of a movie that had a positive impact on your life, and maybe you know you found a lesson there in a movie that uh, you probably I didn't expect to you get you didn't one expect out of. It, right. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do here on Screen Cleaning. Is <clears throat> we're going to encourage you to seek out and and uh, imitate movies that that have a positive message. Now, for an example of art imitating life, there's a new film out that's ripped straight from the headlines. For the fifth time, a Maryland house has been the victim of an out-of-control car. When we crashed into the wall, I said, another car hit my house, says homeowner Leonard Miller, 88. Miller has lived in the Prince George's County home since 1971, and he says early Wednesday morning is at least the fifth time a car has come over a hill approaching his house and lost control as it turned a corner, causing it to jump the curb and ram into a wall. The crashes typically happen when it's dark out, and Miller says drivers fly down the street near his house, where the posted speed limit is 30 miles per hour. So uh, during our commercial break, we're going to play you the trailer for the movie called The House that cars couldn't seem to stop crashing into.
1: In the small town of Hillcrest Heights, there is a hill. And just over the hill is a house. And when it's dark out, something strange happens. No, 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 it's happening again! Some say there's a madman slashing people's tires. Some believe there are supernatural forces at work. Others think it's just bad driving. But whatever the cause, One thing's for sure. Cars can't seem to stop crashing into this house. Ah, The horror. Horror. The house that cars couldn't seem to stop crashing into. Well, you
3: know what that sound means. We're going to be talking to Rod Gustafson of parentpreviews.com. Parent Previews, uh, it's all about helping parents make wiser, more informed decisions when it comes to uh, helping their children find quality entertainment. And Rod Gustafson, welcome back to Screen Cleaning.
12: Hey, good morning, Jeff.
3: So you said, I thought I heard you say during the break that uh, the house that the car
12: has crashed into was your grandmother's house. You know, she lived in the middle of a quiet little residential street in a quiet little prairie city here in Canada. Two times, some guy makes a left turn in the middle of the street, both of them having, you know, maybe imbibed a little bit too much, <laughs> runs right into her house. We couldn't believe it when it happened once. When it happened twice, we thought, okay, what's going on here? Wow. <laughs> Wow, so yeah, it's it's
3: really art imitating life there, that Idiot. trailer. <laughs> so, welcome back. I I've got kind of an impossible task for you here. We've got about, you know, 10 or 12 minutes for you to educate us on the MPAA and uh I I've, I've got questions that we'll get to, but can you first of all just tell us a little bit about what the MPAA is
12: and and what their purpose fills? well the m p a a is the Motion Picture Association of america, and their their main purpose is to promote and protect the intellectual property rights of motion picture creators the m p a a is an industry financed organization financed by i believe it seven major studios like Fox and Paramount and disney et etc um, but that is their major a reason for being is to basically to promote um, to promote American-made uh, motion pictures. However, most of us, when we hear MPAA, we think of movie ratings. Well, there's there's a division of the MPAA called the Classification and Ratings Administration, known as CARA. And that is really, that's the acronym we should really use if we're talking about movie ratings. But everybody refers to them as the MPAA ratings. So what's the difference between ratings in the United States and Canada where you are? Well, the difference between ratings in the United States and Canada or virtually any other country in the world is the United States um, rating uh, system that is operated by CARA under the MPAA is totally voluntary. There is no... Uh, enforced government legislation in place to to enact a, a, a set penalty if somebody ignores the ratings. So in other words, if a young person were to enter into, let's say, an R-rated movie in the United States, which if you're under 17 requires an adult to accompany you. So if you're a 13-year-old and you get into a movie, and somebody reports this well it's really up to the industry to self police um you know and that usually means a little bit of a slap on the wrist and that type of thing now where i live uh the ratings are actually there is provincial government registration which means the province is like a state each of the provinces have their own classification and rating board and um and if somebody were to enter a movie who is under age And supposedly, not supposedly, there is legislation in place that could enact a fine, um, a preset penalty for that happening. Frankly, it rarely does. But it is there to kind of keep this heavier hand on this whole aspect of whether uh, younger age people are actually entering in to see movies that they shouldn't be seeing.
3: Yeah. So, you know, we know that there's G, PG, PG PG-13, R uh and then nc-17 i believe right yes that is correct in in the united states anyway um so what would happen let's just say guardians of the galaxy 2 just came out Let, let's just say that uh, marvel studios wants to put out a movie but they don't want to put a rating on it and so it's not rated it's not unrated but it's not rated what uh what are the consequences of that
12: well, that is definitely possible, and it has happened on rare occasions. But the problem that they face, if a, if you were to make a movie, Jeff, and you wanted to do that with your movie, uh, you have every right to do so. It's a free country. But the problem is is we have the distribution section of the motion picture industry. These are the guys that, that actually, um, and the exhibitors as well. So the exhibitors are the theaters. They're the theater owners, the distributors, which are often um, owned by the studio themselves, but there are some independent distributors too. But they often will not, almost 99.99% of the time, will not release or distribute or exhibit an unrated movie. There is just this, I guess we could call it, I know this is an antiquated term, a gentleman's agreement that if a movie doesn't have a rating, they aren't interested in, in exhibiting it, they aren't interested in releasing it. So the industry itself... Um, really rejects the idea of having a a, a film without a rating. Uh, you could certainly take your film and pack it in the back of your trunk and go drive around the country and <laughs> find those little independent art house cinemas that are you know usually in most in most major cities. Uh, and they if they like their film they may agree to take it on. Uh, but it's a long long hard road to to make your money back on the movie yeah. doing it that way. So obviously these studios
3: want a specific rating and. Usually, it seems like a lot of times they want a PG-13 rating because that means more people can see the film. What kind of compromises do they have to make
12: in order to get the rating that they want? Well, let me just explain so people understand. A PG-13 rating, unlike an R rating, has no age restrictions. So really, a G, a PG, and a PG-13 Anybody of any age can go see all three of those ratings. All the PG and PG-13 ratings do is they just add advisories as to who they feel the movie is age-appropriate for, unlike the R rating, which actually does restrict audiences. Now, back to your question. A PG-13 movie, there are many—first of all, Jeff, the movie ratings are a constant moving target, okay? They change over the years depending on who is in charge of the MPAA and just— kind of the, the political pressures of the day. So with the PG-13 rating, we have noticed many things that have happened this, with this rating since it was brought into play in the late 1980s. It's it's one of the more recent ratings. And um, a PG-13 rating typically uh, can contain fairly high levels of violence. Um, it can contain a lot of sexual discussion, talk and description, but very little sexual activity, Technically, a PG-13 rating, if you look at the MPAA guidelines, can contain nudity in a non-sexual context. So you could have somebody being shown in a shower, for instance, and that could fit into a PG-13 rating. We see that very rarely, and if you want to know why, I can tell you, but that is in there. A PG-13 rating can contain all sorts of profanity, except it is usually restricted to one use of the sexual expletive. And we know the word we're talking about, that four-letter word that that in most people's minds is kind of the top end of the profanity level. All other it's, words. It's though, fudge, right? In there. Fudge. Yes, that's like exactly a, Like they say in a Christmas story. <laughs> So so those are some of the main tenets of a PG-13 rating. The other thing, and this has just changed recently with a movie that we saw not long ago, Going in Style, a PG-13 rating could never contain drug use being depicted on the screen. And we saw a big change with Going in Style. There was a marijuana scene of these three old guys smoking pot. And I was blown away. I thought, okay, this is new. That used to have to be in an R-rated movie. So that gives you an example of how things change. So let's say a studio will
3: uh, submit the application and uh, they get the response that your movie is rated R and that's not the Mm. rating they wanted. Is there some kind of an appeals process that they
12: can go through? Yeah, what you do is you phone Harvey Weinstein and he'll hook you up with his lawyer (laughs) for you (laughs) because that's exactly what is happening right now with a movie that's called Three Generations. So the serious answer is yes, the MPAA has an appeals process. And usually what you do is you talk to the MPAA and you file an official uh, appeal process for your rating and then they will tell you specifically even in great detail why the film was rated R for example and then typically what you do is you go back and you edit your movie and there have literally been uh, instances where directors will cut frame by frame from a let's say a steamy sexual scene in order to trim it down to the point where they'll give them a PG-13 or maybe they have to do away with a sexual expletive in order to get the PG-13 or maybe the violent Silence is just a little bit too explicit to, to get a PG-13. So those are the types of things that will happen. And there's a, a back and forth that usually goes on that you will hear if you read in the trade magazines of Hollywood, like The Hollywood Reporter and Variety. Often you will have stories about directors whining and complaining because their movie didn't get a PG-13 and they've had to go through, you know, modifying their artistic vision in order to make this happen. So, Rod, we
3: just have a couple of minutes left in this segment. I'm curious to know if you think that the current rating system uh, accurately, you know, gives us a good picture of of what we should and should not be showing to our families, or are there changes that need to be made?
12: You know, the MPAA, the one thing I can say for for CARA's for ratings uh, is that they are – reasonably consistent and now i did just say a couple of minutes ago that they change with the times but overall i feel that there is some consistency to them However, my biggest concerns with the rating system, first of all, is violence. There is a, a little trade and play that you see happening. When, when I first noticed this, it was a few years ago with The Dark Knight, the Batman movie that came out with Heath Ledger. Incredibly violent movie for a PG-13 rating. But there was very little sexual content and very little profanity in that movie. And I, I have noticed likewise with other movies since then, especially with violence, that if you want to shove a uh, fit a lot of violence into a PG 13 movie, dial back on the sex and profanity. I don't think they should be doing that. I think there, there needs to be a level for violence and they need to stick to that level, regardless of how much sexual content profanity there is in a movie. So that is one issue. And then the other issue that we're seeing, and again, bringing up the Harvey Weinstein thing, Harvey Weinstein has gone to the MPAA to appeal um, a variety of movies. He does this repeatedly, and it's usually because there is more than one or two uses of the sexual expletive. And so he has been a constant force on the MPAA to loosen up the rules on including that word in PG-13 movies. Well, you know who's running the movie rating system, Harvey Weinstein or parents, because... That is who the movie rating system is supposed to be serving as parents, not movie producers.
3: That's interesting. And, you know, you brought up the example of The Dark Knight. And we talked earlier in the show about life imitating art. And, you know, that's one of the tragedies that occurred, you know, during a screening of The Dark Knight Rises was this guy coming in and. You know, fully armed and armored and saying that he was the Joker. And it's so unfortunate that that happens. And, you know, like you said, there are these movies that are incredibly violent that are squeaking in there or, you know, slipping
12: by the the ratings board on a PG-13 rating. Yes, there are. And again, that seems to be a pattern that I see increasing. And uh, and I think they need to be really careful with the levels of violence, because as I mentioned earlier, a PG-13 movie, if you're eight years old and you've got the money to get in, you get in. Well, Rod, thank
3: you for educating us more on the MPAA and the rating system. Let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, we want to continue this discussion of of ratings, and we're going to do that By giving you alternative movies that you could watch. If you don't feel like watching an R rated movie, well, we've got some movies with similar themes that maybe you might want to check out. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. I'm speaking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews, and uh, we just finished talking about the MPAA and more specifically CARA, which is the ratings board that uh, decides what a film is going to be rated. And we're going to kind of continue on. That discussion by by giving you a list of films that you can check out that don't have that R rating, but maybe still have some of the same themes and ideas that those movies have so that you don't have to watch content that you're not comfortable with. So, Rod, thanks for uh, coming prepared for this. And I'm we you've got a few and I've got a few. So why don't we start
12: with you? What's what's an alternative to an R rated movie that we could watch? (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well, I need to tell you first of all, Jeff. That it's, so I expanded out a little. The first one is an R-rated movie. We're going to b- briefly talk about it, but my other two are PG-13s that I still don't think you could watch. Should watch. So just to give you a heads up. <laughs> okay. So. The first one, Hacksaw Ridge, you know, um, this movie, obviously the Mel Gibson film that was nominated for Oscars and uh, an incredible story, true story about Desmond Doss, um, played by Andrew Garfield, who uh, was in the World War II battle at Hacksaw Ridge as a conscientious objector, but still wanted to participate in um, serving his country as a medic. What an amazing story. What an amazingly violent film. Really, um, I think Mel just, he he has a thing for violence and he didn't need that much. I would love to have seen this film rated PG-13. So, an alternative. Angelina Jolie, a few years back, made a movie called Unbroken, which is another true story about Louis Zamperini. Zamperini, I always pronounce his name incorrectly, <laughs> but a wonderful another true story about a guy with just incredible tenacity that um, that managed to survive um, just all sorts of horrendous things that happened to him during World War II. And uh, it has it has it's rated PG-13, and there is still war violence and there's this this is not a movie for children but it does dial down on the violence enough that you could share this wonderful story with your teens you know that's so funny because that was on my
3: initial list and then I I chose something else but the one that I want oh, to you did. <laughs> yeah, one that I want to mention is really big on Redbox right now you always see it plastered on the the marquee is a movie called Why Him which I have not seen it but the title says it all this girl uh takes her parents over to her fiance's house to introduce them to him and he's this very wealthy Uh, young man played by James Franco, who is just kind of a buffoon, and her parents, or at least the father, is completely clueless as to why his his sweet daughter would want to marry this idiot. And Mm -hmm. uh, so I haven't seen it. It is rated R, though. Um, Another movie that you could check out if you don't want to see the content in uh, Why Him is Meet the Parents. Which, of course, spawned a couple of sequels. It is PG-13. It's uh, Ben Stiller goes to meet his fiance's family and the reluctant father in this movie is, of course, Robert De Niro, (laughs) who just cannot get behind Ben Stiller. Can't get behind the idea of him marrying his sweet daughter. Very funny film. I think there are a couple of uh, sexual references that that might be a little inappropriate for younger viewers, but overall, very funny film and a
12: great alternative to Why Him? Absolutely, and pretty pretty good choice. Um, the, the, the next one on my list. And again, I'm sorry, I went to the PG-13 on this one um, because I, I just I don't see a whole lot of R-rated movies because of parent previews. So this is where my familiarity lies. We had a movie last year called Me Before You, which really presented a very upsetting message to us. I wish this movie would have been rated R. Frankly, I wish they'd never made it. This is a story about a man. He's very wealthy, and he's in a car accident and becomes paralyzed, and he decides that he wants to take his life through doctor-assisted suicide, and this is a a movie that the whole purpose is to promote doctor-assisted suicide and empathy for this person, and it's a very, very one-sided story that I think presents a very dangerous message. Uh, In fact, a lot of uh, disability groups were upset about this movie when it came out. So if you have heard about me before you and are interested in the idea of a person having a different perspective on their life despite their disabilities, there are some great choices out there like A Beautiful Mind for instance um, it is a wonderful film uh, that was nominated I think I'm getting my years mixed up I can't remember how many years ago this was now but this is a story uh, about a, the man, the mathematician John Forbes Nash who was nominated for a Nobel Prize and he was dealing with many um, mental uh, challenges and that type of thing The Mighty for young children I've always loved the movie The Mighty and this presents a, a young boy who is dealing with a disability and all the wonderful things that he's able to do. And I'm no Stephen Hawking fan because I disagree with many of his philosophies, but boy, I got to give the guy credit. Here is a man that, you know, I I watch a movie with this rich guy whining because he's paralyzed from a car accident. You look at a guy like Stephen Hawking and what the guy still is able to achieve uh, despite the physical difficulties that he has. And so we had the movie recently, The Theory of Everything, with Eddie Redmayne playing Hawking.
3: (laughs) Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of honorable mentions before I give you my last one. Um, Okay, if you don't want to see the girl on the train, why not check Mm -hmm. out Strangers on a Train or Rear Window? Uh, Yes, Rear Window. Definitely. (laughs) One of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, If you don't want to check out Don't Breathe, which is about a group of teenagers breaking into a blind man's home and getting a little more than they they bit off a little more than they could chew, watch Wait Until Dark, the Mm -hmm. Audrey Hepburn film that got her an Oscar nomination where she plays a blind woman and uh, has these... Uh, strangers coming into her home, pretending to be friends of her husband, and they're really after a doll that has uh, something in it that they want. So those are my yes. honorable mentions. I now this film I haven't seen. It's the Edge of Seventeen, and uh, it's it's a coming of age high school movie with Haley Steinfeld, and uh, it's it is R rated. And it just kind of chronicles the awkwardness of growing up in high school and dealing with boys and, you know, growing, you know, changes in your body. So if you don't want the content of the R-rated film, The Edge of Seventeen, check out the PG-rated Napoleon Dynamite. And in fact, I think uh, Edge of Seventeen even references Napoleon Dynamite at one point. She holds up a picture of herself, and she looks exactly like Pedro Sanchez from (laughs) Napoleon
12: Dynamite. I just know that from the trailers. But uh, that's my other. Pick. Very good. And I must admit, I say guiltily, I I enjoyed The Edge of 17, but there's a film that I really wish. That they could have done in a PG-13 version, but alas, they didn't. So my, I'm going back to a recent release here that kind of had me a little bit um, frustrated with was a movie called Split. Now again, this is a PG-13 movie, but it's the story about a a, a man who uh, who abducts three teenage girls, and uh, and I found the whole thing just quite uncomfortable watching these three teen girls go through this, and it was a lot like, of course, the real world story the of what happened in Cleveland with those three girls that were discovered in that home a couple of years ago. And so I found Split to be, I mean, you know, there's kind of creepy in a good way and then there's creepy in a bad way. And it crossed the line for me. 10 Cloverfield Lane, I thought was just a marvelously made movie. And if you're looking for a thriller that and for some reason, this one didn't bother me in the same way that Split did. So there's a there's an alternative that I think is a better alternative. And again, they're both rated PG-13, but I just felt like one crossed the line where the other one didn't.
3: I agree with you on 10 Cloverfield Lane. That was one of my favorite movies from last year. And uh, Cole is a little Cole is running the board. He's a little offended that you didn't like Split that much because nope, that, that looks very near and dear to his heart. <laughs> anyway, Rod Gustafson, thank you so much for your time and thanks for giving us those alternatives and educating us a little bit more about the ratings process. We'll, uh, we'll have you back on the show here real soon. I think we're going to have you back to review a movie here in a week or two, but uh, thanks for your time and, and thanks for for all that you do at Parent Previews you can look them up at uh, parentpreviews.com they also have a podcast the Parent Previews podcast we'll take a quick break when we come back we will continue the fun we'll continue the fun and head on over and uh, talk to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation this is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show
9: I'm Sean O'Neill, and this is a 90-second movie review of King Arthur, Legend of the Sword on BYU Radio. The Legend of King Arthur is a well-known and often told tale. Director Guy Ritchie takes a turn at telling the story in this feature. In this film, Arthur starts as a young prince, and we see his parents killed as he floats away to a life of hard knocks. Still, he rises to a fairly nice station in the underground. And now older Arthur, played by Charlie Hunnan... Runs some not-so-legal ventures. Then the waters near Camelot recede, revealing a sword stuck into stone. Arthur does not care, but he winds up at the stone. He does remove the sword, but he's knocked out by all that the sword reveals to him. When he awakens, his uncle Vortigern, played by Jude Law, is going to execute him so that he may have the throne for himself. Arthur must fight his uncle and his demons to understand what all this means. The story flows very well on the screen despite edits that Ritchie places in the film. He loves those close-up running shots. The film has a lot of action and fighting and some people die in this story. Bloody wounds are shown. Parents, you might want to remember that there are some frightening creatures that wield weapons and animals that attack people. And being a fantasy story, there are mages and dark magic. Some visionary scenes also move the plot along. And there's some suggestive language as well as some drinking. This this is a good version of Arthur, despite some of the artistic shots that had no meaning for me. I'm giving King Arthur Legend of the Sword a B grade. I'm Sean O'Neill, and this has been a 90 second movie review on BYU Radio.
3: Welcome back to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show, and once again we're heading over to BYU Sports Nation to hear what they've got on their show. Spencer and Jerem, welcome to the program.
6: What's up? How you doing? Oh, yeah. hey, we're just uh, we're just we're just making you know making uh, waves making mu- on, making so, that on money. social media, making that money, making waves. Um,
3: you know, yesterday I mentioned to you guys. Sorry to interrupt the social media. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean to make it sound like I was offended by that. Um, yesterday, I mentioned I was going to play a softball game, and I went. I How'd didn't it go. I didn't know anybody on the team, but I did meet one lady, one lovely young lady named Caitlin, who works with you guys.
6: Oh, Caitlin,
3: are
10: you playing on the King. co-ed softball team
3: here? I am. Nice. The BYU broadcasting go? team. So. I was nervous because I haven't played in seven or eight years and I, my hand is hurting. I, you know, messed it up. And I I got there, didn't know anything about what the rules would be. And there were lines that you couldn't cross in the infield until the ball was hit. So I thought, oh, OK. And it's on grass. So the ball is not going to be hit very hard to whoever's playing the infield. Plus, the guys only get two pitches. So you just got to swing. So that's gonna, that's going to decrease the number of really good hits that people will get. Uh, also, um, everybody bats every inning, which I wasn't expecting. And Welcome then the team didn't, the other team didn't have enough players, so they forfeited. So right off the bat, there was like zero pressure. Did you stretch? I, I did. I told you to stretch. I did stretch and okay. I stretched afterwards too. Okay. And, uh, we won the game.
10: Because of the forfeit. <laughs> because of the
3: forfeit. Well, no, no, no. They did end up pairing us <laughs> with another team that didn't forfeit. And oh. so, yeah, we did win. I'm not going to say that it was all because of me, but I, I will say that I scored the last run by a headfirst uh, slide into home.
6: I don't believe you for a second. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow! You had a headfirst slide into home. Yeah. When you, there, Pete Rose? Is there any video? In a game this? on baseball too? Tell me yeah. somebody was like Snapchatting or
3: it was pretty epic.
6: Instagramming this thing.
3: It was pretty awesome.
6: Instant gramming.
3: So uh enough of uh, your social media there. Um sorry, again I, I don't Sounds
10: fun. Did you have fun?
3: <laughs> it was great. It was great. Um you know, earlier on our show we we've been talking about some stories of life imitating art and art imitating life. And I know I've talked to you guys before about seeing the Mighty Ducks and going to Big Five and getting a hockey stick and trying to pull off the perfect knuckle puck. Do you guys have any examples of films that you saw that uh, you thought, oh, I'm going to try that?
6: I wanted to be Jimmy Chitwood in Hoosiers. Really? Yes.
3: I wanted to be Tom
6: Cruise in Top Gun at one point. (laughs) Yeah, who has As a six-year-old. Jimmy
10: Chitwood was like the most boring, great player ever. He never missed a shot. But his personality was the worst. I wouldn't want to hang with Jimmy Chitwood.
6: He never missed a shot. What
10: I'm do you think talking about his shooting? What do you think's and that,
4: more important? That's
6: what I wanted to be and do. It was never miss a shot and be the high school basketball star, right? And have no girlfriend because you're so boring.
10: I'm just kidding. In the <laughs> Richards building, there's a there was a guy with the last name Chitwood on a plaque, and I was like, oh, is that? As I whispered to myself, everybody that story coming up on the apple seed. <laughs>
3: you know, everybody's Mormon when you when you do a little digging. You know, Rudy just got baptized <laughs> into the Mormon Church.
10: So many people stopped in their cars. Yeah, and uh, that aren't Mormon and like, excuse me. what what did you say
3: (laughs) you know it's funny because when i was a kid and one of my friends would tell me oh did you hear that james franco is taking the discussions i I bit into that immediately i was like no way anyway (laughs) kids will believe anything i also believe yeah don't don't get me started on that what else is coming up on your show in a couple of minutes here you guys
6: oh let's see uh, there was a twenty-three to nineteen baseball game last night featured on. Did you hear about this BYU huh? TV? Twenty-three to nineteen. It took four and a half hours. Spencer Linton
10: called that game. Pretty. Wow. good. So there was a five-hour, thirteen-inning game on Tuesday, and then a twenty-three to nineteen, four and a half-hour game yesterday. So Spencer Linton has spent nine and a half hours on the air. He has produced more content single-handedly, talking by himself. With Gary Scheide and our fantastic crew. This week, then, name another show. Just on the air, on BYU TV right now. The
6: Appleseed. Nine and a half hours of baseball.
10: (laughs) Nine and a half hours. And another game tonight. And another game tonight and another game tomorrow.
3: Would you rather see a game just full of runs like that, or would you rather see a closer game where there's only one or two runs scored?
10: I'll answer for Spencer. It's going to be the closer game because there's less time spent at the (laughs) ballpark. (laughs) Brandon, Miller Park is an amazing place. It's a beautiful scene. It's just, you can get a win without having to see
6: 42 runs cross the plate, which was crazy. We'll tell you all about it coming up. What else, you guys? Heath Schroer is the newest member of the BYU basketball coaching staff, but he's kind of not new because he coached at BYU for four years between 97 and 2001, why is he back and why is he the perfect fit for Dave Rose's new staff?
10: Hmm. we we'll talk to Steve Cleveland, uh, one of our BYU TV analysts, President Coach Steve Cleveland, former head coach here, who hired Heath Troyer the first time and was with him at a uh, couple of stops. Three, in fact. So we'll talk to Steve about Heath Troyer. Plus, how did Eric Mika do at the NBA Combine yesterday? We'll tell you.
3: Hey. Can I? Do we get to hear your twelve-second Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two review that you shared?
6: Sure, download the podcast. Oh. <laughs> it's at the Low top blow. Of the, it's at the top of yesterday's podcast. I, we tweeted it out, didn't we? Did we not tweet it out? I thought we tweeted out. We did the podcast. It's been put out into cyberspace, <laughs> into the cyberspace ness. <laughs>
3: Well, Jerem, I just want to I say— I wish I had
10: it on me right now. I'm sorry. We, I want to
3: I say not. two words uh, right now in the Kiefer Sutherland whisper.
4: hmm Thank you.
10: <laughs> Did you know Kiefer Sutherland's in a band and he came to Salt Lake recently or is coming to Salt Lake?
3: Did he whisper all the lyrics?
10: He's like, get me a chopper.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Drop the
10: weapon! <laughs>
4: uh, yeah, he's
3: either, whispering, he's either whispering or screaming at the top of his lungs. <laughs> yeah. sounds like a great show you guys knock them dead we'll talk again on Monday have a good weekend Jack Bauer out (laughs) oh I love I love Keefe the Keefe is has been good to me over the years well, you know, we always talk about on-screen cleaning. How our mission here is to help you find the best entertainment around. Uh, one way in which we'll do this is by shining a spotlight on a particular movie, actor, performer, or a story in a segment we're calling panning for good.
1: There's good in them dark hills. Whoa. <laughs>
3: Well, uh, you know, we we spoke earlier to Rod Gustafson uh, of Parent Previews about alternative movies. You may not want to watch The Girl on the Train because of its content, so maybe you can check out Strangers on a Train or Rear Window. Well, in today's Panning for Good segment, we've got another alternative movie. You may not want to watch The Godfather, another R-rated film, but maybe you'll want to watch a very obscure film, kind of around the same time The Godfather was out, uh, kind of with similar themes, too, but it's... Uh if it had a rating I think it was PG or or G. It's a little film called Bugsy Malone. Now this movie was made in 1976 and it's basically gangsters but all children. The soundtrack is amazing because it's done by Paul Williams who wrote pretty much all of the the uh the Muppets songs back in the day including The Rainbow Connection. Just an amazing musician. He does the soundtrack for this. And he actually provides his vocals for some of the children singing because you don't hear any of the children's voices while they're singing. They're all dubbed over by adults. And uh, it's these two rival gangs that uh, are trying to fight over this territory. And uh, instead of shooting guns, they shoot, they throw pies at each other and they shoot these guns that are called splurge guns, which are these... Basically, Tommy, Tommy gun looking guns that shoot out this pie substance at their foes. And it is just a brilliant, clever movie. In fact, we've got a clip from the movie. These two gangs are meeting and they have a clever exchange with with one another.
6: What can I do for you,
5: Sam? How about a small dose of straight talk, Dad So it's me. You've been taking liberties. I've been taking what's mine. The trouble is it belongs to me. Too bad. Uh, I'm sure we can talk over sensibly. I'm a businessman. You're a dime a dozen gangster, Sam. Now, butt in your lip, mister. You don't talk dirty to me. I don't like your mouth. I have to have some respect, you know? You'd slit your own throat for two bits plus tax. Keep your wise cracks behind your
6: teeth. Keep talking. Uh, I have my position to think of. Right now, it's not worth a plug nickel. You're a dirty rat, Dan. You've been watching too many movies, Sam. Can't move me, let him have it. Charlie Young, because it's a double cross.
5: Okay, use guys, freeze.
3: And there you have the sound of the splurge gun. Growing up, this was one of my favorite films. It was kind of a big deal when it was out, and uh, now it's really difficult to find. Get this, the two stars of the films or of the film, Scott Bayo of Charles in Charge fame, and Two-time Academy Award-winning actress, Jodie Foster. What's great about this film is you have these kids that are acting like adults. They do such a good job of it that even to this day when I watch it, I feel like I'm watching adults. Oh, you've got to, if any way you can find this movie, I know that Netflix, uh, they have a company, DVD.com, that you can, you can find it through there. You could find it on YouTube. Check it out. It is just a complete delight to watch that's going to do it for this episode of screen cleaning on the matt townsend show again on screen cleaning it's our job to help you try to find as much quality entertainment as you can so that you and your families can just enjoy something together for once we'll talk again next friday when we return on screen cleaning